Hi, everybody, and thank you very much for checking out this episode of Lighting the Pipes. I'm really excited today to be here to review the fourth Philip Marlowe story written by Raymond Chandler. We are talking, of course, about the lady in the lake. My name is Scott Powell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-conspirator, my sidecar riding partner, because let's face it, I'm, I'm driving, aren't I, Josh? Yeah, you're the Indian, Indian, you're the Indiana Jones in this situation, and I'm uh, I'm I'm Sean Connery in the sidecar. Well, I, I was thinking Batman and Robin, although your your mention of uh, Henry Jones Sr. certainly does uh, does have a fitting place in the world, doesn't it? With Connery's passing last week. Especially, yes, it does, hundred mm-hmm, percent. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're, we are here uh, to talk about lady in the lake and thank you very much for joining us everybody we hope uh, we hope we got yes, a good show you. set up for you um we're, we're glad that you're liking these reviews that we've been doing and we really appreciate all of the uh, all the love that uh, has been sent our way via email lightenpipes at gmail.com <laughs> and uh and on our instagram page as well so it's cool and yeah. josh i've been excited about this one because i gotta be honest with you man when i started reading lady in the lake i was absolutely mesmerized i was really thrown into the beginning of this story and that's mm-hmm. not that's not me showing my hand by the way early and saying i didn't like the rest of it i'm just saying i was hooked into this one like i like i wanted to be with the high window and um yeah so i'm i'm really interested to learn if there was anything going on in Chandler's life at the time that maybe lent himself to writing a story that had this sort of outside of LA feel to it or if it was just pure creation on his part or another splintered short uh, short story episode like we had with the big sleep uh, I'm really interested to get started so unless you've got any preamble that you want to talk about with respect to crime crime fiction or how things are going then let's just jump into this man yeah, absolutely, Scott. Um, I want to talk about um, that essay that Raymond Chandler uh, wrote. Uh, I believe it's The Simple Art of Murder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in that essay, he talks about his feelings on genre fiction, particularly mystery fiction. Right. And he's speaking, of course, of the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of style of mystery writing, which he feels is very generic and he wanted to do something different. And the lady in the lake to me, to answer your question, Mm -hmm. I I think is Chandler realizing that in terms of financial success of his novel so far, hasn't been the greatest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Knopf is still keeping him. They're still publishing his books. However, The High Window was not a big seller. And even previously, Farewell, My Lovely wasn't that great either. Um, The Big Sleep, I think at the time, is still considered like his most published, most popular novel. So when he wrote Lady in the Lake, like he felt very um, bitter about being still attached to the mystery novel. We know that he wanted to, not to the mystery novel per se, but to the t- detective novel yes, specifically. Yeah. And the tenets um, of what, what came before, yeah. Exactly. Like, I mean, if you look at, um, for example, Hammett, um, one critic said of his writing that it's almost like you are reading um, Hammett's Pinkerton reports. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. in a way, I mean, Hammett was, was, did work for the Pinkertons before he became a writer. So it's a very kind of blasé, straightforward, not too in-depth or poetic kind of writing style that Hammett has. But with Chandler, Chandler was a little different, obviously. We discussed his style so far and how he stands out in the genre. And I think this is what the series is all about, really. But clearly with The Lady in the Lake, Chandler wanted, I guess, to address the mystery fans that were out there that he needed, I guess, to ply for um, more financial success in his mm-hmm. novels. So I think he wrote a straightforward whodunit with this story. I think that was his goal. 
Um, hmm. He did cannibalize some of his earlier works, from what I understand, and he began writing Lady in the Lake in 1939. He started writing around the same. He had two drafts going on at that time. At that point, he was working on Farewell, My Lovely, and when that wasn't working for him, he would go back to A Lady in the Lake, which he originally entitled Deep and Dark Waters, and ended up calling it Deep and Dark Waters, The Lady in the Lake. And you can see some kind of similarities of themes in The Lady and the Lake and um, Farewell, My Lovely. Particularly, you know, you have like the lady killer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically we have Lady in the Lake is essentially Chandler's, I think, his nod at the mystery fans saying, I'm going to give you a Marlowe novel, but I'm also going to give you a standard whodunit. I'm going to use the tropes of that genre to uh, write this story. And that's what we got from The Lady in the Lake. And as much as I've enjoyed the past three novels in terms of uh, how Chandler creates his world and how he portrays Marlowe and, and just the writing style, I did enjoy this novel as much, I think, just from the very beginning, I think, because of that mystery feel that I was so familiar with when I went into this story. Like, to me, this, was, this felt more like a detective story uh, than the previous ones. The other ones, to me, were you know, just rich people caught up in corruption and murder and all this kind of stuff. And yes. I, yeah. I felt that uh, Marla was more of a Holmesian figure in this story. Yeah, uh, I, I understand what you mean. Trying to solve a case. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't really, a, uh, I guess he was solving, trying to find a case. He was being loyal to his client and being a professional in, in that sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, while, you, you know, of course, he does betray his empathies to certain people in the case, it's still a the, the whole point of it, I think, in the end is to reveal who did it, mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, who was responsible for the lady in the lake in this in this case. Yeah. And um, there's more procedure in this story than I think what we maybe might have had with him, at least in the, in the first half of the story. There's more procedure about what Marlowe's doing, which is why we feel more like it's a, a standalone detective story than maybe just a guy bumbling his way through a case that he doesn't quite understand understand. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I keep going back to this biography by uh, Tom Williams, A Mysterious yeah, Something in the Light. It's been the an excellent of, little companion for us, hasn't it, so far? It, it really has, yeah. This Life of Raymond Chandler that Williams wrote. Now, he posits uh, that he was when it came up with this idea that it could have been, an, that can be seen as a companion piece to Farewell, My Lovely. Um, and just in how like the first two books deal with the first three books deal with, I think, you know, the upper class sort of corruption and, and how they affect people's lives. This book portrays uh, thematically how corruption affects the regular person, um, not just the corruption that exists from on high because of the power, but because the power trickling down that corruption trickling down into everyday people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the, the evil isn't all just the, the rich. You see it trickle down here. There's more of that sort of shit rolls downhill. And, and maybe that is somewhat on Chandler's part an appeal to, to get a readership, uh, I don't know, in a more blue collar way. But I, again, I, I don't think it was just the, uh, I don't think it was the upper crust of society that's buying and, and reading and digesting the pulps, is it? No, not really. No, and again, but we're going to the pulps. Um, in, in, we're going to the pulps and the mystery stories in this fashion because he utilizes more tropes of those mm -hmm. um, of those genres than he has ever used before. Um, this book has, like, you know, William says, and I agree with him that this book is rife with a series of clues throughout the novel that you, as a uh, a standard mystery r reader, would be able to pick up. You know, like. When everything is considered in the end, well, like for example, the 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 uh, the ankle bracelet, for example. Yes, the ankle bracelet. Okay, but but see, going back to that, like, 
I, I understand what Williams is saying because there are clues. There is foreshadowing in this book and some of it heavy handed, but I do not necessarily agree if indeed he, he's trying to convey this point that this is a, a Playfair mystery because like the other three stories, I still find it depends largely on this big, here's me putting everything together for you at the end. And in fact, one of the reasons, and perhaps this is me showing my hand a little bit, why I think Lady in the Lake ultimately doesn't hit all the all the cylinders mm-hmm. for me is because its third act is so rushed and so much a, you know, um, peekaboo game of look what I know and what you probably didn't. And I know that a lot of readers enjoy those types of stories. They like being taken on a ride and at the end trying to make it all connect. But I have to be completely honest with you. By the time I reached the end of this story I had no idea I had no idea how I could have put this one together myself so I disagree a little bit with Williams because I'm used to Chandler pulling little quick tricks on me and saying here's what I know but I found the information drop that we got at the end of this when they get back up to uh, Puma Lake um, Puma Point I, I found that that info drop was bigger than any info drop we've had anywhere that conversation with Patton and DeGarmo and himself I felt that that was just so shoveled in there that it was him trying to stitch together short stories again and make it all work so I really didn't like that and I don't like that about Chandler's writing but perhaps because I'm not as well versed in mystery genre as or in this the pulpy Mm. kind of genre as you are Josh I, I I'm missing something here but these aren't necessarily rides that I enjoy being taken on like I can think of mysteries that offer me clues but don't demand from me that sort of noodle twisting connection at the end of it all i guess it depends upon how absorbed you are into what you're reading and true yes and, yeah. and i think it also too to do with like you know you have other things going on in your life and stuff like if you're reading a book like this you know from like i mean i mean i know that you were reading it in a certain time period because you wanted to get it read for the show and whatnot but i think there's people who sometimes unlike other people get way too absorbed into i think the world of the, uh, that that chandler creates and other writers mm-hmm. create that these details become almost important to them as everyday real life details and i guess when that revelation occurs at the end and we all know what we're talking about mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. the identity of the lady in the lake uh, everything clicked together for me. Like it was almost like all the links in the chain. Now I was just kind of blown oh, okay. away by it. Like cool. it was almost cool. like an M Night Shyamalan moment yeah. for me. I guess I kind of forecast that. But I'm not. And I do agree <laughs> though how that can be seen as an exposition dump. But at the same time, like I, I when I look back at it. And I kind of like, you know, we went and reread certain parts over and whatnot. I can see how it all connects in that fashion. Hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, this is definitely a novel that is of, so far of all his novels uh, could, you know, welcome a second reading just on the basis of putting things together in that way. If you have time for that kind of thing, of no, course, right? I, yeah, I, I admit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I admit your point and I accept your point. And I, I do have, as you say, deadlines that kind of get me to read stuff quickly, but I love these books for their writing and I am compelled in in the stories, but I find them complex and I'm, I'm pleased to find them complex, but I don't find them as satisfying as mysteries because the narratives are transparently stitched for me. And sometimes within the stitching, there's these pieces of information which we're supposed to have picked up on that I just don't pick up on them. And I find that it's a bit too much hard work for me to play Chandler's guessing game. I find so many red herrings in these in these stories that were made to feel like every character is important 
and well that's the right that's the establishment of red herrings yeah. right mm -hmm. and, and and that's kind of that is a bit overt in the writing i definitely agree with that so going back to uh tom williams uh, now, he considers this, uh, and some people do, the most misogynist of Chandler's works because, once again, he's this killer is a woman, but she is also a, a destroyer of men, deceiving them, manipulating them, coming to the point where their abuse of these men, uh, this female killer, mm -hmm. is herself destroyed by them because of her actions. And Marlowe seems to have more pity on the killer's murdering corrupt cop of an ex-husband than he does for the killer whom he calls a cold-blooded little bitch. Mm -hmm. There is no real explanation as to why Mildred Haviland is the way that she is. She's just bad from the get-go. Yeah, you know? she's, she's poorly drawn as a, as a villain. Yeah, yeah. like DeGarmo is a much more interesting villain to me than Mildred Haviland ever was. Mildred Haviland was just, an, in a way, a red herring, I think, in the, I guess in the overall big bad of the story, which was DeGarmo, who was this man that was mentally destroyed by his obsession with this woman, probably to, I think he was already mentally ill in the first place, you know, because he, he did clearly have an obsession with her and she knew it. She wanted to get away from him. And I think that's why she took up with Elmore and found mm -hmm. another way to escape. And then she wanted to take control of Elmore's life, but that didn't work out for her. And then she came to build Chess's life and destroyed his life as well. Um, well, William, Williams's observation then, Josh, I think raises a very interesting question, which you and I can tackle when we soon get on yeah. to scoring our perpetrator. And that question is, can a story survive with two major perpetrators? Because yeah, that, that, that's a good I, I'm not so sure that they can, although the characters themselves are linked together. And I guess, I guess you could say one's running and the other's chase is connected. I, I'm not so sure that the big drop of one perpetrator does work when you're balancing it out with the girl that you're supposed to be thinking is evil the whole way through. So we, we can talk about that balance of that perp mm -hmm. in the narrative when we get there. But uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And it's, it's neat to see what he says about it. Yeah. He, he does, yeah. And then he also asserts, you know, you know, again, we have this villain, this this villain, DeGarmo, uh, is a villain because his masculinity is destroyed by the female antagonist, and that Chandler seems to find the idea of a woman committing a crime much worse than that of a man committing a crime. Uh, and so he wants to punish her even more for doing, doing so. And I, I don't know, like, Personally, I think that this has always been a factor in Chandler's novels. He has the femme fatales all the time. I just think it's just, you know, that's part of the, and this isn't just him. This is the whole, this is the whole noir genre mm -hmm. yeah. in, in, uh, entirely, which is built around the idea of the spider woman, the femme fatale, right? Of course. So, yeah. I mean, this is no different than the other misogyny that existed at that time in writing, per se. So, it's the most misogynist of his works. I mean, we still have a couple of novels left to read. That's so, right. we will see. Uh and I think it's only really a misogynist because we have less of a background for Mildred Haviland being the way that he is. I mean, even Ian Fleming, what, you know, when, when he talks about even like people like, for example, Tiffany Case and Diamonds Are Forever, she is the way that she is because she comes from a very bad social background. Mm -hmm. um, how she grew up and the life that she led, you know, from basically post adolescence up until up until then. So. Or even before, I mean, I, I think it was she was like born in a whorehouse, essentially, if I recall. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. to me, this is just like I think Williams might be a little critical there on the whole misogynist point. But 
you know, he sees what he sees in, 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 his, in his writings, and I, I can respect that. But, I mean, it, it is, it's an interesting question, and I think what you're saying is correct. He, he might be a bit critical, um, given how deeply within the tropes of the genre Chandler's already established his story with this Spider-Woman stuff. But it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a value to, to discuss, because the, the female perpetrator here has agency, but only agency in her response to how the man made her this way and then you know the, or how the man scared her off and, and abc but she's just bad from the beginning but if you think about farewell my lovely you've got a character like ann rarden who is given agency of a positive nature and of an independent nature she's not she's not a woman like miss Fromset who's got information but is still working for the man or a you know the seductress who will eat up men and and then spit them out again uh, the sexuality within these stories is is just very challenging for me. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I understand, yeah, especially like in you know, like with the whole sex killer bit l later on in the story. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a very interesting leap. I think that that we could we can discuss as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that Williams doesn't mention um, is that Chandler completed uh, the novel in 1943, but I'm just curious. He doesn't mention the. Uh, he does mention that they also not released the paperback version of The Big Sleep that year. Um, paperback was kind of a thing that was still not really popular. But when mm -hmm. it was released, it sold 30,000 copies, the copy of The Big Sleep. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't able to find out the um, publication success of The Lady in the Lake. I'm assuming it was probably the usual response that they've been getting from Chandler so far. Um, but I wanted to find out about it particularly because of how he stuck to the tropes of the genre. Mm -hmm. And that might have, you know caused a rise in popularity of the novel on that basis. But I wasn't able to find that information. Um, if anyone out there, you know, is listening to the show can let us know, you know, how that book did, uh, let us know. Um, we've been trying to find out information on, on, on how it went, but. And it's funny yeah. as well with, uh, with Williams extended, um, sources there in the book that, uh, nothing, nothing shared. So yeah, if, if you've got any information on how Lady in the Lake, uh, sold, during its first run then by all means uh, let us know on the show lightenpipes at uh, gmail.com or find us on instagram thanks for that yeah so just a thing i just want to discuss about i think about chandler at this time too is that he was doing a lot of traveling like a lot of moving from place to place as we discussed when he was doing uh, the high window and the uh, farewell my lovely as well as him going up into the mountains and doing a lot of uh solace there and a lot of writing there uh, until it got too hot for them and then they of course and and Sissi's declining health also didn't help with that as well. Yeah. So yeah. they had to go to other climbs, more lower climbs to do so. But just in the description of of uh, Marlowe taking an excursion outside of Los Angeles and Bay City, uh, we go up into the mountains to Puma Point, uh, as it's called, uh, Little Fawn Lake, Coon Lake, and mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. all, and all that uh, imagery in the mountains yeah. up above San Bernardino. There, you can tell this is definitely a place where he's writing from personally. Like he, he very well describes in the laid out, he knows the atmosphere, and I think sure in a way, in, it just in, in the writing, he really enjoys uh, talking about these places and, and describing them. And, and and I think he enjoyed adding this extra layer to Marlowe outside of Los Angeles that uh, worked well, I think, to create the overall world building. I think. For his, for the, I guess for for his Marlowe stories, mm -hmm. and I think I think he pulled that off very well. Um, also, and was there any one just... place, any one place, Josh, that that Chandler's visited that's kind of inspiring this this part of his writing, or is it really just he's moving well, I, around a lot? 
I would say like Big Bear Lake. I think that was a place okay, that sure. that they were that they stayed in a couple of years before um, that they had to come down from um, mm-hmm. because of Sissy's health. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that uh, was definitely an inspiration. I also want to point out too, uh, Bill Chess's attitude in this story. I know we'll discuss Bill Chess as a character, but in terms of Raymond Chandler in a biographical context, I think th- I think Raymond Chandler knows how to write alcoholics uh, like because. He, I mean, he is one. Mm-hmm. He, he was one, I should say. So I think that was probably a very, uh, that's why that character Bill Chess stands out so, I think, brilliantly in the text because you believe him as a real life person, you know, just mm-hmm. in his mood swings and in, and everything else uh, when, when, when he's portrayed on the page, even though he's only like in a small part of the story, but he's still part of the story in, in its own way. If you and he's, he's part of the story at a very pivotal moment too. Yes, hundred. Yes, yes, of course. The the pivotal moment, and then the one that gets overturned, literally, uh, in uh, in the final act there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, essentially, um, yeah. So our next book is the Little Sister, and um, for that, I'm going to have a little bit of. Um, uh, we'll have a bigger bio section in that because we talk about the rest of 1943 when a big event occurs, and that is Chandler's summons to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Looking forward to will, that. Yeah, this will be a big part in uh, in Chandler's life, and it'll definitely affect also his writing um, as 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 it continues. Excellent, yeah. And I'll uh, we'll, we'll switch up our roles then, and I will take on the, uh, the the summary role for that one. But I did the summary for the high window, so <laughs> I am going to put my feet back and uh, turn it over to you, BFG, and let you share with our listeners a summary or your summary for Chandler's The Lady in the Lake. All right then. The client is Gerace Kingsley, CEO of Giller Lane Cosmetics, makers of a wide range of cosmetic products, including Giller Lane Regal, the so-called champagne of perfumes. Kingsley is a large cutthroat executive that, upon seeing P.I. Philip Marlowe waiting in his reception room, doesn't like what he sees until begrudgingly, in the middle of his lunch hour, summons Marlowe to step into his office. He gives Marlowe the high-handed treatment, but Marlowe's snark and willingness to bark back helps to break the professional ice and slightly alter the bigger man's opinion of him. After being offered a peace offering in the form of a cigar, Marlowe allows his client to describe the case. Kingsley's frivolous young wife Crystal has gone off and disappeared. Having thought she was up at their cabin in Little Fawn Lake, high in the mountains, he received a brief telegram explaining she is off to El Peso to get married to Chris Lavery, a beefcake Lothario who used to work for him. The marriage was already in shambles. Kingsley doesn't mind her sleeping around as he has been trying to do so with his own secretary, Adrian Fromset, who Marlowe had already met during his purgatory in the reception room. What does concern him is scandal, for despite the telegram, Kingsley ran into Lavery less than two days ago. When confronted about the telegram, Lavery claimed he had no idea about the elopement and said he had not seen her. Kingsley goes on to mention that he received a call from the Prescott Hotel in San Bernardino, the first stop from the mountain solace of Kingsley's little Fawn Lake cabin. They reported his car was found abandoned in their parking garage. With this information, Marlowe presses forward. His first stop is Bay City, a locale he has not traversed since the Moose Malloy case in Farewell My Lovely. In this fictional city-sized municipality, bordering Los Angeles along the rim of Santa Monica Bay, he visits the residence of Chris Lavery. Lavery is the beefcake Marlowe assumes, and the questioning session is cagey. He gets Lavery to admit he was seeing Crystal Kingsley, but that he was growing tired of her, and even stood her up once, positing that she could be doing this whole disappearing act to get back at him. 
But Lavery will say no more despite Marlowe's incisive prodding. He kicks Marlowe out and rides off to the beach, leaving Marlowe to return to his parked car. Now, prior to interviewing Lavery, Marlowe had a tense staring contest with the owner of the black coupe that was now parked across the street. With Lavery's departure, Marlowe took a moment to view the house across the street a little further. According to the name on the gate, this was the home of Elbert S. Elmore, M.D. So for the next few minutes, Marlowe observes Elmore's paranoid behavior as the good doctor eyeballs him from across the street. Marlowe sits in his car, watching through the window as the doctor reaches for his phone. A plainclothes man arrives shortly after, a big hulking Bay City police detective, who, after speaking to Elmore, pays Marlowe a brief visit. Marlowe gives his little tidbits of information, enough for the detective to tell him to get lost. Marlowe relays his encounter to Kinsley, who tells him that Elmore was Crystal's doctor and he had been up to the cab in Little Fawn Lake a few times, and that his wife committed suicide a little while ago. A rather important fact. Kinsey gives him a letter which Marlowe takes up to the CEO's cabin at Little Fawn Lake. Marlowe in turn gives it to the place's caretaker, one Bill Chess, an alcoholic war veteran with a limp. Marlowe and Chess bounce back and forth at each other due to Chess's sweeping mood swings triggered at the slightest sign of distrust or judgment from Marlowe. Chess admits that he, has, he had not seen Crystal, nor has he seen his own wife, Muriel. Wanting to know more about this Muriel, Marlowe gets Chess all friendly with the help of the contents of his flask, and is regaled with the tale of Chess cheating on his young blonde bride of barely a year with Crystal Kingsley. Curiously, around the same time, Crystal heads off for El Peso, and Chess finds a letter from Muriel in his bedroom telling him that she is leaving him. This banter goes back and forth as they walk the property's lakefront shoreline, Marlowe doing his best to battle Chess's melancholic demeanor. But when, le but when leaning over the docks, Marlowe notices a sunken landing, one which he was told was flooded over when the nearby dam was constructed. Chess suddenly notices something in the water, sticking out from under the submerged flooring, something resembling a human arm. Chess hurls a big rock into the drink as it sinks and breaks up the planking below, and within moments a bloated, badly decomposed corpse of a blonde woman floats to the surface. It's Muriel Chess, according to Chess's mournful moans. Marlowe reports this finding to the local sheriff, the immovable and taciturn Jim Patton, who, with his small staff, pull Muriel's body out of the lake and arrest Chess on suspicion of murder. Although to Marlowe, given the evidence, this seems more like a suicide than a murder. Nevertheless, Chess has brought down the mountain to San Bernardino for questioning, but Marlowe is told to remain to give a statement. Marlowe is skeptical of Patton's assertions despite the motives presented. He heads into the nearby town, Puma Lake Point, and amidst the hubbub of the summer tourist season, lodges at the local motel. After finishing his meal, he heads out to his car, where sitting inside is Bertie Kepler, a hairstylist by day, intrepid reporter of the Puma Point banner by night. She is affable enough for Marlowe to interview her in regard to the Muriel Chess case, explaining to him that a big cop named DeSoto appeared in Puma Point a few weeks back looking for a woman named Mildred Haviland, brandishing her picture to all and sundry. Having seen the picture, Murdy says Mildred was a redhead but didn't recognize her. When she mentioned this to Muriel Chess, she noticed an iota of reaction from the other woman. And come to think of it, she recollects, though the hair color was different, this Mildred did take after Muriel somewhat. Following this conversation, Marlowe updates Kingsley on the involving situation via telephone. He decides to break into Bill Chess's cabin, but Sheriff Patton was already waiting inside. Patton and Marlowe seem to have a simpatico of some kind, and the tension de-escalates. Patton remembers being shown a picture of Mildred Haviland from DeSoto, but never put together that she resembled Muriel Chess. While Marlowe argues for Bill Chess's case, Patton points out an additional finding he made at nearby Coon Lake. 
In an abandoned woodshed, he found Muriel Chess's car, as well as a few suitcases with her clothing. This pointed at the murder being not just out of passion, but also premeditated. Patton then reveals another piece of the puzzle, a broken anklet chain he found in a box of sugar in the Chess kitchen. Marlowe and the sheriff head out, but Marlowe eludes him and returns to the cabin, returning to the box of sugar in which he finds the remainder of Muriel Chess's jewelry, including an attached golden heart with the inscription on the back, To Al, from Mildred, with all my love. Marlowe then presents this evidence to Patton, casting doubt on the current suspect for Muriel's murder. The coroner's results can't say much to the cause of death due to the state of decomposition on the body when it was recovered, but it could be enough to ensure Bill Chess's innocence. Marlowe descends from the mountains, heading back to Los Angeles, but first he books a room at the Prescott Hotel in San Bernardino, and with dollar bills, ginger ale, and whiskey, bribes the bellhops to tell all they know about Crystal Kingsley's activities while she was staying there. Crystal Kingsley met a man here and apparently left with him. Marlowe was finally able to get one of them to cough up a description of the man, a description matching that of Chris Lavery. Marlowe doesn't stay the night, instead he drives back to Bay City. He arrives midday to find Lavery's front door slightly open. Stepping in, he is confronted by the awkward landlady, Miss Fallbrook, who is holding a pistol in her hand, one that she claims to have found on the stairs. With her purple hat and messy hair and makeup, Miss Fallbrook relates to Marlowe how Mr. Lavery was late on his rent and they agreed to meet on this day, she says, but it appears she has been stood up. Typical Chris Lavery. Marlowe and her back and forth until he either angers her or frightens her, maybe a bit of both, and she runs off, leaving the gun. Once she is gone, Marlowe heads downstairs to the master bedroom, where there is indeed evidence of sexual activity. He finds women's clothes in the closet and underneath the pillow on the bed a perfume-soaked handkerchief monogrammed AF. In the adjoining bathroom, he makes another discovery. He finds Lavery, shot to death in his shower stall. But he does not immediately go to the police. Remember, this is Philip Marlowe, always thinking of the interest of his client. He visits to raise Kingsley first. At the athletics club, he reveals that he has not reported the murder, but an all evidence points to Crystal Kingsley as the murderer. Kingsley offers Marlowe $500 in addition to his current salary to prove that Crystal did not do this terrible thing. Marlowe agrees, but Kingsley must understand that they are using his playbook now. Marlowe then heads down the street to the Gillerlane offices and requests to speak to Kingsley's girl Friday, Miss Fromset. She is a cool customer, and Marlowe gradually drops two truth bombs on her. The handkerchief with initials AF and that Lavery, whom when he first took the case realized she was not fond of by his very mentioning, was dead. She takes it all in with, a, with a grace and talks about her long-ago tryst with Lavery as well as Crystal Kingsley, whom she is not fond of either, as well as Dr. Albert Elmore and his dead wife, Florence. According to Miss Fromset, Elmore was cheating on his wife with his nurse and that Lavery had Miss Elmore's body in her garage, dead by carbon dioxide poisoning. She goes on to explain that an acquaintance of hers, a Mr. Brownwell, put forth a theory that a good doctor may have murdered his wife and the police covered it up as a suicide. Mrs. Elmore was apparently causing a disturbance at a gambling den run by a local Bay City bigwig named Lou Condy, and her husband arrived on the scene to inject her with morphine and took her home the very night she died. This comes from the fact that the Graysons, that is Florence Elmore's own parents, hired an investigator, George Talley, to look into the possibility that her death was foul play. Their meeting concluded, Marlowe makes it clear that he doesn't see her as a suspect in Lavery's murder, and Miss Fromset is happy to find out the address of the Graysons for him. 
Marla returns to Lavery's house and calls the Bay City Police. After some uniforms secure the crime scene, a Captain Weber arrives with his burly big lieutenant, Al DeGarmo, who Marlowe instantly recognizes as the cop that shied him away from Almore's place the day before. Weber is skeptical of Marlowe, and when Marlowe describes his reasons for being at the crime scene and reveals the nature of his profession, he has no choice but to discuss the finding of Muriel Chess's body up at Puma Point, and that Muriel Chess and Mildred Haviland may have been one and the same. As well as Chris Lavery had been the one to find Florence Almore's body, in what suggests seems like a murder that was fudged into being a suicide. As Weber and the coroner view the body downstairs, Lieutenant DeGarmo indicates that he does not like the baseless accusation being thrown at the Bay City Police Department and belts Marlowe not once but twice. He leaves Marlowe, but not without leaving the not-so-thinly-veiled threat. Miss Fromsett's efficiency gets Marlowe the address of Mr. Eustace Grayson and his wife Letty, Florence Almore's parents. Mr. Grayson is a former chartered accountant, and his understanding of finances led him to come to conclusions about Dr. Elmore's professional aspirations. Dr. Elmore is a dope doctor, plain and simple. He is paid to administer the addictive drug to all those who pay for it, or those that pay for it to be administered to others. They hired George Talley to obtain this information and to find any evidence that their daughter had been murdered, as her daughter was a foolish young girl who got caught up in the wrong crowd, and they never liked Elmore from the get-go. Marlowe learns George Talley was no longer of any use to them as he had been convicted of DWI by the Bay City Police and sent off to jail for six months. Talley left a wife behind who the Graysons ensured they send money once in a while. The Graysons believe that the Almore killed their daughter with one shot of dope at Lou Condy's and a second dosage at home where she was left in the garage to account for the carbon monoxide poisoning. While Marlowe can't attribute Elmore as murdering his wife, the Graysons attest he did so through the help of his nurse, a woman named... You guessed it, Mildred Haviland. Marlowe needs to find out what George Talley knew to be set up by the police on a drunk driving charge. He visits the Talley bungalow at dusk, noticing a car across the street, observing his every move as he speaks to Mrs. Talley through the screen door. She doesn't want anything to do with him or her husband. Marlowe drives off, aware he is being followed by the same car. He speeds up trying to lose them, but they put the sirens on. It's a police cruiser. The cruiser forces him off the road and two uniforms proceed to harass him and then at gunpoint force him to drink the liquor they provided. A good punch in the gut forces Marlowe to spill it all over his coat and suit, soaking him in booze. He fights back, breaking the nose of one cop but is sapped in the leg by the other. He wakes up in the jail cell and is brought to Captain Weber with DeGarmo in attendance. Marlowe explains that he was being set up much like George Talley was and he names DeGarmo as the cop at Elmore's the day before and Weber orders DeGarmo to leave. Weber and Marlowe discuss the case, mostly that of Mildred Haviland and DeGarmo, as DeGarmo is clearly the DeSoto that came up to Puma Point, and there is no cop in Bay City named DeSoto, as Marlowe explains he has learned. Weber shares that Tally was no good Weber shares that Tally was a no-good blackmailer rather than another Seamus. In his possession, Weber reveals Tally had a single non-worn slipper belonging to Mrs. Florence Elmore, this purporting that she was carried to the garage and did not walk out there herself. The slipper must have dropped in the garage when the suicide was being arranged, but Tally kept the slipper and instead of delivering justice to the Graysons was probably planning to extort Elmore instead. Weber also reveals that Mildred Haviland was DeGarmo's ex-wife. With this said, he releases Marlowe from custody and Marlowe returns to his office to ponder this new revelation. His brief solace is interrupted, however, when both Therese Kingsley and Adrian Fromset ring the buzzer. Miss Fromset has received a call from Crystal Kingsley, who is asking for $500. Mr. Kingsley wants Marlowe to meet at the appointed location and deliver Crystal the money. He is to wear Mr. Kingsley's green scarf as identification when he goes to meet her. 
Ms. Fromm said indicates he will be able to recognize Ms. Kingsley as she will have her hair dyed brown, not her traditional blonde. So Marlowe heads into the Peacock Lounge in Bay City. A Mexican boy acts as a point man for Mrs. Kingsley, who is wrapped up in a coat and hat outside the establishment, waiting for Marlowe. Marlowe convinces her that he will need an explanation before he gives her the money. Reluctantly, she agrees to meet him at her room at the apartment building, the Grenada, a few blocks over. When Marlowe enters her apartment, he tries to coax a story out of her, getting her jumped through various hoops of emotions, confused, scared, angry, aloof, until he compliments her for playing the foolish little blonde so well. Before she dyed her hair, she played the part of Miss Fallbrook, and she did indeed kill Chris Lavery. She gloats while he tells her this, proud of her work and in a sociopathic kind of way. In response, she pulls out a gun and tries to shoot him, but there is a struggle and the gun is knocked out of her hand. But as soon as Marlowe gets the advantage, a large figure emerges from behind, and he is sapped again. Marlowe wakes up to a waking nightmare. He is soaked in gin, and Crystal Kingsley is dead on the bed, stripped naked and gruesomely strangled with bloody scratches made by human fingernails across her abdomen. He's still in the Grenada apartment, and with perfect timing, the police are knocking on the door. Marlowe knows the setup when he sees one, of course, and manages to rev up the mental acuity and physical dexterity within to slip through this apartment's bathroom window and into the adjacent apartment's bathroom window. Once inside, he changes into some conveniently fitting clothes of the conveniently currently an uninhabited apartment and attempts to slip out through the door. But a young uniform named Shorty spots him from down the hall and calls him to stop for questioning, bringing his superior, El DeGarmo, over with him. DeGarmo lets the Shorty make all the calls of Marlowe being a sex killer, considering the evidence, and he is ordered to help bring Marlowe downstairs. They head to Marlowe's car in the garage and throw him in the back seat and drive off. DeGarmo then points out, to the, points out to the uniform that their prisoner has been clearly bludgeoned on the back of the head, and that, is, that this is very well a setup. Shorty, however, doesn't feel this is by the book if they don't bring him to headquarters, and is soon let out, leaving Marlowe with DeGarmo. Marlowe reveals that in his pocket is a green scarf, one that he tore from the guy who sapped him, Durace Kingsley. DeGarmo agrees to head to Kingsley's, but the CEO is not at home. Their next stop is Miss Fromset, who says that she can't give Kingsley an alibi because he dropped her off at her apartment before the meet. It doesn't take long for her to figure out that Marlowe wants her to hint that he might have gone to the cabin. They head for the cabin. Despite the tension, it is a rather cordial drive to Little Fawn Lake. Along the way, however, Marlowe makes a telephone call to Sheriff Jim Patton, asking him to check to see if Derace Kingsley has arrived. Once in the mountains, they arrive at the dam, which is now being guarded by sentries of the U.S. Army on the lookout for possible Nazi or Japanese saboteurs. DeGarmo is antagonistic, putting the window down, but Marlowe smooths things over and the guards allow them to proceed across the dam. They soon arrive at Little Fawn Lake, where Sheriff Patton is waiting outside the entrance to Kingsley's shoreline property. With assurance that someone is home, they proceed to the cabin. Andy, Patton's deputy, waits outside as Marlowe, Patton, and DeGarmo enter and wake Kingsley from his sleep. DeGarmo cites his prey and unleashes a torrent of accusations upon DeRay's Kingsley, that he killed his wife in anger and tried to set up Marlowe for the job. But tired and drunk, Kingsley isn't following. DeGarmo then brings out the green scarf and asks if he owns it, and Kingsley says he does, which gives Marlowe his cue. DeRay's Kingsley gave him that scarf for the meat, yes, but he was never in the room with Marlowe and Crystal. And Marlowe reveals... Neither was Crystal, because Muriel Chess wasn't a suicide, nor was she murdered, but Crystal Kingsley was. Crystal was the badly decomposed body found in Little Thon Lake. 
Muriel Chess, aka Mildred Haviland, after killing her lover, Albert Elmore's wife, with a second injection of dope using the same needle that was given to her in the same spot hours before forcing a good doctor to set it up as a suicide to avoid suspicion from himself, had fled the scene. Her husband, Al DeGarmo, the lead investigator of the suicide, covered it up, and Mildred disappeared. She then got attached to the foolish Bill Chest and lived in seclusion at Little Fawn Lake. That was until, tired of her life with Bill, she tried to extort money from Almore, and this sent DeGarmo up the mountain looking for her. When she got wind of someone matching her ex-husband's description, searching for her, she moved fast, and Crystal Kingsley's seduction of her husband was the perfect opportunity. Mildred killed Crystal Kingsley, drowning her, possibly in her bathtub, as a drowned body would not float if it was submerged, and being a good swimmer, she dragged the body under the flooring of the sunken pier. After hiding her car in the woodshed at Coon Lake, she took Crystal Kingsley's car. She reached San Bernardino, where she ran into Chris Lavery at the Prescott Hotel, who of course recognized her at the Kingsley cabin as Muriel Chess. They went to El Peso, where she sent a telegram to Kingsley that she was leaving him for Chris. Of course, this was not her intention, and Chris soon took off with her purse and silver. Returning to Bay City to cover her tracks and avenge her theft, she murdered Chris, and this was where she took up her guise as Miss Fallbrook, deceiving even Marlowe. Needing more money, she contacted Kingsley, which led to her confrontation with Marlowe in the apartment, which subsequently led to her murder. But not at the hands of Kingsley. He wouldn't have recognized her, obviously, but at the hands of her ex, Al DeGarmo, who had been hiding behind the green curtain that divided the main room on the apartment from the other rooms. After knocking out Marlowe, DeGarmo lost it on the woman who gave him so much torment and strangled her. He then made it look like a sex crime to pin it on Marlowe, but Marlowe's escape complicated that. Marlowe then reveals that he got DeGarmo to accept a new scapegoat, Kingsley, for the murder. Thunderstruck by this revelatory dialogue, DeGarmo attempts to outdraw Sheriff Patton. But Patton apparently is the current fastest draw in the West. DeGarmo's gun is shot out of his hand, but he manages to make a run for it. He easily commandeers Andy's car and proceeds to cross the dam. Marlowe, Patton, and Andy roar off in pursuit, but by the time they get to the dam, it's all over. DeGarmo tried to drive past the sentries, and as a result, they opened fire. Andy's car plummeted off the side, hundreds of feet to the rocks below, and our story concludes with Marlowe observing what remains of DeGarmo being pulled from the wreckage. Very nicely done, sir. That, that I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure, clears up. Well, it certainly clears up a lot of what I found challenging, particularly with the second half of this story. Um, and yeah, well done. Well done. Yeah, thank you. I, I hope, uh, yeah, I'm glad I could clarify those things for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I needed a lot of clarification. And as we as we said at the outset, you know, um, The Lady in the Lake is a story of two halves for me, like, like The Big Sleep was. I feel as though while there's not a point of demarcation where I can say, yeah, here's where a different short story snippet's being plugged in here, I really did find the that sort of rush back up to Puma point when the three characters are meeting and we're getting this big data drop about how Marlo saw it all. Like, I know that a lot of readers, particularly those with, with more experience reading the pulps than I have, may have been able to put A to B to C to D to F and cut out D and go head to G and figure it all out like you certainly mm -hmm. did. But I had trouble, buddy. I had trouble with this one and it took me out of it. The second half took me out of it, definitely. But uh, the first half, wow, this is as good as 
as anything that Chandler has written. And I am so excited to be up in the mountains. I'm, I'm loving the sort of um, uh, the Puma Point stuff, the lakeside mm-hmm. holiday descriptions, all of that, you know, busy with the tourists, the color, the youthfulness, all of that is cool. And yes. I love the, the descriptions. Yeah, absolutely. And and the restaurants, you know, the restaurant, the diners and all that, the, 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 the terrible tourist meals and all of that contrasted with Little Fawn Lakes, very secluded and quiet, great scene for, you know, something going on. Yeah, and the big it, reveal, as we, yeah. as we said. Yeah. And, you know, while we are starting at the beginning, I suppose, um, we'll, we'll start by lighting our pipes um, and we'll go through the five points of our acronym, the principles, the investigation, the perpetrators, the environs, and the secondary characters. So we'll start with principles now that our pipes have been lit. And, you know, I love... Marlowe's chat early in the story with Bill Chess like he goes hard from the start you know he he asks because he's he's suspecting that this guy Bill Chess might have had something to do with either the disappearance or maybe slept with the character or slept with Crystal or something like that and mm-hmm. he asks he asks him you know if the beds are comfortable which yeah. I found really quite brusque you know yes quite... yes but 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 that's how he kind of like what he does is he like he just pokes a a little hole like a little pin yeah, he in does there. he does but he, he... just to provoke and get a reaction but it's surgical it's not like he's doing like some bludgeoning he's a, it's a surgical strike i guess you could mm-hmm. say to get him past to make him i guess tell more information and of course the lubrication by alcohol helps as well it does yes but i i don't think marlo has always done that with with people he's he's met on on the trail of a case like he doesn't go straight no. in like that like i mean he he basically says to Bill, he basically intuits that I know you've you've slept with someone. I know you've slept with her. So tell me, are the beds in that com are they in that comfortable? Like I felt that, that that's a high risk strategy for the character to exhibit with a guy who ultimately could could help him out here. True, but I think also here Marlowe was this wasn't Marlowe, you know, trying to save some poor girl from uh, some rich asshole. Like this is Marlowe doing a case for trying to find out where his where his client's wife is. Mm-hmm. So he's a little more professional. And if you look at his conversation with Chris Lavery prior to this, yes, when he yeah. goes to see Chris Lavery. Now they're both KG on both ends, but but Marlowe is still provoking Lavery. He's pissing Lavery off too because he's dropping insinuations. And Marlowe mm-hmm. just Marlowe just 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 seems to be functioning on autopilot up to this point. I think mm-hmm. in in this investigation. And uh, he's just there, you know, like even when he goes at the uh, Giller Lane, he's looking at the cute girl at the uh, mm-hmm, at, mm-hmm. At, at the uh, at the um, the phone switch. Yeah, which I had to look that up. A PBX is a uh, mm-hmm. is a is a phone switcher. And uh, then, he, you know, and then he's also making eyes at Miss Fromset. Right. So he's he, he's just kind of like just taking his case as normal. But then I think when he realizes that Bill Chess isn't the kind of person you do this to because of the all of a sudden the mood swings that Bill mm-hmm. Chess goes through and Marla recognizes that, OK, this guy is not who I think he is. There's something off with this guy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there's he's he's not only inquisitive, he goes from brusque, but then all of a sudden he kind of puts on the velvet gloves a little bit afterwards with Bill and Well he uh, gives him booze, yeah. He gives him booze, but not only that, like even when Bill gets angry, he doesn't get angry back at Bill. Like he calmly tolerates him through mm-hmm. the whole of proceedings, but he's also very diplomatic while he does it. So I think he kind of evolves from being in this sequence from being um, overtly professional and brusque, as you said. Mm -hmm. And eventually he kind of just uses his skills that he's so good at to get the guy to talk. You know what I mean? And how did you find him um, once he sort of penetrated that world of Puma Point? Did you like him? Yeah. 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 I thought, uh, yeah, like he seemed to like, uh, 
you know, he, I think he enjoyed the scenery of the place and he got along well with Patton in his own way. Um, I think he, I think he bounced off people pretty mm-hmm. well. Like he has a whole conversation with the, uh, the stylist slash reporter, uh, Bertie Kepler there. Yeah. And I like that, I like that a little bit. Yeah, she's like waiting in the car for him, and uh, <laughs> it's like, what the heck's going on here? And and then like these people are very forward in their own way. I think he I think he was tired of the tourists, though. I think those people really annoyed him because he can't live that kind of calm life yeah, that that, yeah. that that that, mm-hmm. that they lived. He was stuck going back to the to the city. To the city, yep. Yeah, yeah, to the city where all the where all the corruption and everything is, and these people are just up in the mountains pretending it doesn't exist. When in <laughs> fact, right. right now, he knows there's a dead body in the lake far away. Yeah, just, sorry, yeah. not 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 so far away. So that corruption follows them back to, up into the mountains as well. Mm-hmm. So he just thinks they're a bunch of fools in his own way. Well, I liked Marlowe. I mean, okay, I suppose to start generally, I don't think in this book, The Lady in the Lake, Marlowe is much different to what we've seen before. I don't think no. we're getting a different skin uh, or a, a different sort of layering to his character. There's nothing really more profound being built upon him. I think it's no. interesting how in the last story, The High Window, and Chandler spoke about this himself in the bio points that you discussed on that day in that recording or in that episode. But I think it's interesting how, you know, Marlowe wasn't roughed up in that one. There was none of that sort of violence and the sadism in quite no. the same way. Whereas here, he does get roughed up by the corrupt police. He does get framed, essentially, until he gets himself out of it. He does yes. get framed for a sex murder. You know, there's a lot of more, there's a lot more violence in this one, almost as though he's returning to that pulpiness that people dogged him for. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. Anyway. Yeah, due to the lack yeah. of sales of The High Window, because it was That's something, right, yeah. it was more of an experimental character piece that he wanted mm-hmm. to do in something different mm-hmm. um, that he tried which to make cool. himself. Which yeah. Which was cool, yeah. And that's why I kind of like, I enjoyed The High Window on that basis, because it was yeah. different from yeah. the previous two books. And here, we're, we're not going, we're not all here in this book, we're not only going back to Marlowe, the, pro, the pro, you know, we're going back to Marlowe, not like this shop soil Galahad. I mean, he still is in a sense, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but right now he is, he is not just another detective on the case of a yeah. mystery, essentially. Yeah. Um, even more so due, due to Chandler, you know, deciding to go deep into the mystery novel um, genre here. Well, with the exception and with the exception of Miss Fromset and maybe the Graysons, I can't think of a character in the story that in that would enable the chivalrous side of Marlowe's character to come out here in this yarn, really. Yeah, absolutely. Like, is he chivalrous to Miss Fromset because he sympathized with her position or is he just attracted to her? Yeah, I think he's attracted to her. I think exactly what you say is right, because he describes that upper lip and it's a sentence repeated three times. You know, she had a she had a nice upper lip, a nice long upper lip. I like upper lips or something like that. Right. Yeah. Like he he thinks she's really attractive and the, the male gaze is in full view here. I feel as though Marlowe is... in a very kind of Chandler male gaze. Like, Chandler never talks about, like, for example, like, when he gets to the alcoholic part of it and uh, of Bill Chess, for example, and and Bill Mm -hmm. Chess is quite explicit talking about Crystal uh, Kingsley. And uh, you never get that... I was the first time I ever saw, like, I think even the word nipple used in a Chandler Mm -hmm. novel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess it just goes to show, like, he was... That just goes to case to show of, I guess, of the... Uh, Chandler maybe connecting alcoholism with his own, with uh, I guess with moral laxitude, I suppose, yeah. and yeah, and that that was something you know that he might identify with, you know, especially during his alcoholic years in the um, uh, when he's working for the oil company when he was actually cheating on his wife and getting drunk all the time. Yeah, good point. Good point. I think Marlowe was resourceful in the story, but he's no more resourceful here than he has been in the past. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. It's an episode of the week. It's an episode of the week. For for him, it's not like a 
it's not like a main storyline, you know, like. Well, it isn't. It isn't, buddy. Like yeah. I agree. I agree with it that that's the way we're supposed to take it. But yet, what he manages to iron out of all of the different noodles and strings in this story, you know, from Doctor Almore to the wife to the the identity of the killer, like everything he's able to iron out makes it very much not an episode of the week. I feel like this is. Marlowe, in the second half at least, holding everybody to ransom and everything in his pocket. Like, it, it's just a little bit unnatural how much he knows and how much he put together before the reader. And okay, you and Williams and perhaps our listeners would say, yeah, but all the clues are laid out there, Scott, if you just read it more carefully. And, I'm and not maybe, saying that, but... No, no, but maybe, no, no, fair enough. Maybe I haven't. Maybe I got to go back and do another rereading because the thing I didn't like about it was that second half or particularly the third act. But... I loved everything else. I really liked the secondary staff or the secondary characters in here. I loved the environment. I really liked how where with Farewell My Lovely, you know, I'm all about the interior spaces. Here Chandler really paints nice images of things outside. And I think I think we've got good good like symbolism with this too. I was thinking about the idea of Lavery's house, you know, and the idea of the bungalow. These aren't really bungalows though. These are bungalows built on cliff sides, on bluffs. And so yes. they, they drop down and you've got this whole you've got this whole idea of like staircases not going up but going down, which going down. Which, which make you think of descent and which make you think of hidden secrets and you know the, yes. the depth the depths of someone's personality and, and secrecy and all of that. But up until chapter twenty five, I find Marlowe is is as is as witty and is as survival and you know maybe a little more procedural as we said a bit more procedural oriented as ever um but after 25 i feel like i'm just chasing him and i i feel like that's something that in the mar in the chandler stories we've read so far that i haven't really loved as much that's what i'm doing i'm chasing i'm not really in a cop car behind him or in the reader's car two cars behind him i'm on a bus stop still waiting <laughs> still waiting to get on his route you know what i mean that, that, that's just how I feel. And I, I put my hands that's up, fine. you know, I put my hands up and say, maybe it's my simplicity. Um, and Don't I worry. To, I won't send I any prowlers to like a, <laughs> a, a, a prowler in two uniforms to make you drink whiskey or something like that. I'm not going to do that for you. Don't worry. <laughs> I should hope not. Yeah. But no. uh, yeah, my, my mark for principles, I, I went uh, I went for a three out of five because he's good. But I'm taking two full marks away for the for the fact that it's just a big info drop that gives him his power at the end of the story. I think I'm weaving between three and a half and a four because I found Marlowe was just kind of like the Marlowe that we know so far. And there wasn't really any big developments in his character in this one. But especially compared to the high window, there was a big where we had some big reveals of his sympathies. I, I think he was still the same person. Uh, this, this, this does take chronologically. Uh, this, this does chronologically take place after um, the high window, then I can see this is the same character. I have no mm -hmm. doubt about that mm -hmm. whatsoever. You know, him doing a professional job and it becoming quite a tangle, I guess yeah. you could say, that he gets yeah. himself into. I can see that he is attracted to Miss Fromstead. He sympathized with her as well. Um, there is uh, there is that chivalry in there for sure. Um, going back and looking at the chapter where Captain Weber is interviewing him after he's been released from the jail and brought to Weber's office and yep. Weber kicks DeGarmo out of the office and, uh -huh. and then, of course, Weber talks about the shoe that um, George Talley found that he was hiding because he's a blackmailer, not a detective who was on the yes. Grayson side. Yeah. There's a moment here. Marlowe said, I heard you called DeGarmo Al, but I was thinking of Elmore. His name's Elbert. Weber looked at his thumb, but he was never married to the girl, he said quietly. DeGarmo was. I can tell you she led him a pretty dance. 
and a lot of what seems bad in him is the result of it. I sat very still. After a moment, I said, I'm beginning to see things I didn't know existed. What kind of girl was she? Smart, smooth, and no good. She had a way with men. She could make them crawl over her shoes. The big boob would tear your head off right now if you said anything against her. She divorced him, but that didn't end it for him. Does he know she is dead? Weber sat quiet for a long time before he said, not from anything he, he has said, but how could he help it if it's the same girl? He never found her in the mountains, so far as we know. I stood up and leaned down on the desk. Look, Captain, you're not kidding me, are you? So this to me, well, this the, just at that moment where uh, Marlowe basically says, I'm beginning to see things I didn't know existed. This to me is the switchover from Marlowe doing what he always does in all the books, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. switching over to automatically sizing up uh, DeGarmo in his sights. And this is, I think, where he slowly lays the plan where he figures out what's going on. Okay, what, and, and what chapter is that? This would be chapter 28. Right, well, I, sa I said 25. I'm with him up until chapter 25, so only a couple chapters after my point, you're citing that conversation with Weber, and you think that it's telegraphed for the reader that Marlowe's putting things together, and we now can do that with him. It could be an innocent piece of writing that Chandler put his dialogue in the story to make things go forward. It could also be a way to reveal that Marlowe is putting pieces together. Mm -hmm, it's it's mm -hmm. it's up to you to decide, but sure. I kind of I kind of see it, and just how he says like you wouldn't because then he says to the captain, "You wouldn't be kidding me about this, would you?" So to me, I think Marlowe was putting things together right then and there. Right. Because okay. following this is when is when he is this because following this is when he ends up having the whole Crystal Kingsley meet, and then the green scarf and all of that is all starting to tie together, right? So, right, right, um, okay. It's, it's, make, it's making sense to him, I guess, from that point onwards. And that's when, uh, one thing I noticed in the Wikipedia um, explanation on the story was that Marlowe tricks DeGarmo thinking that it was, or no, Marlowe, what I didn't realize, and I, I, I kind of caught on at the end, was there seemed to be some kind of simpatico share between Marlowe and DeGarmo that they knew that DeGarmo was the killer, but Kingsley was the one that Marlowe offered to give to uh, DeGarmo as a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's kind of... But then, of course, he does the play with Sam saying, oh, well, I got the scarf from him that night. And, and then everything falls into play, right? Like the whole exposition dump, as you said, occurs. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, it's really, I guess it's really terms upon how you read it. If you're looking for those things or if you're not looking for these things, you either notice it or you don't, right? And, and I like didn't. I, and I didn't. So it, full credit like, to you and the others who did. I, I didn't notice it because perhaps I was I was just so used to not trusting some of the stuff that I'm offered in these stories, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just the expectation that is set by Chandler in his writing, you know? Mm -hmm. But I always, I always got to wonder, like even I look at the previous novels, there has to be moments in there where... You know, where it's revealed about Marlowe might have figured out about, you know, about um, the Sternward daughter being the killer of Reagan or, you know, of that. It was uh, Mrs. Grail that was the killer uh, in um, the affair with my, my lovely. I like think just... I think his character is pretty consistent in The Big Sleep, because if he wasn't, yeah. if he did know that Carmen was the killer, then he wouldn't have gotten the car with her and let her drive to the oil derrick because that gun was loaded. Right. I thought it was empty because he took the bullets out. Oh yeah, you're right. Gun. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. So yeah, they discard yeah, all of he, that. You could yeah, be he right. Yeah, he did figure out just in and there. Like he knew yeah. from from he that knew. point on he that knew. that, yeah, that was knew. the case exactly. Yeah. 
Um, now it's a bit more of a rabbit out of the hat kind of moment than I think in the, I, I think personally than it was in Lady in the Lake, but mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's your own view, I suppose. Sure. So what did um, you go for for Marlo? For Marlo, I gave principles. A four. I gave a solid four. Cool. Um, okay. Marlo was consistent and, mm -hmm. uh, I kind of liked how, um, he also got his, uh, his, his brain going there and he outfoxed, mm -hmm. uh, DeGarmo, even though like DeGarmo doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like a genius to me, but yeah, I don't know that he outfoxed Degarmo. I think that the uh, I think that the two Sentinels who are on <laughs> who are on Puma Puma Point yeah. Dam, I think I think they did it. Okay, so yeah, my my score was a three. Your score was a four. In terms of investigation, um, I I loved the first part of the story, as I say, more probably the, the because of its contrast to the city than anything that Chandler has written. But yes. I did dislike the speed and that rather quick stitching of what well, how I've read it at least of the threads at the end of the story. For me, they completely kind of they sucked me out and they made me kind of follow the vapor trail of the story instead of really ride in the plane with it. And you know, I'm sure, as I say, there are some that are listening who, who did a much better job of playing along and guessing than I did. But I'm reminded of a quote which Marlowe himself utters in this book, Josh. He says, but yesterday was a hundred years ago, something crystallized in time like fly in amber. Now, mm. he's talking about his fatigue and his tiredness. But see, for me, so much is packed into a single day for Philip Marlowe by his own admission that, like two or three days go by yeah, in the story, that essentially. I, I, I would like a few scenes in the book where he just goes home, sticks a record on, has a drink, plays chess, and reflects on things while maybe giving us, as readers, an opportunity to digest some of his internal thought. Because, yeah. because you know, I would just like the reader to get a breath so that I, I got an opportunity to think with the character. I don't feel in this story like I got a chance to think with the character. I have to guess with him. But Marlowe... Yes. Marlowe is up against it in the story in terms of time. He needs to act in accordance to time. And he's got the Bay City Police trying to set him up. And he's got, yeah, I mean, Crystal, who could disappear. Well, Haviland, who could disappear. But I just feel like there are no breaths in the second half of the story. Whereas we got such a nice slow open to it that it, um, it just kind of took me out of it. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, yesterday is 100 years ago in this story. And so much happens that... Unless you're taking, and I thought I was, <laughs> but unless you're taking really detailed labyrinthine notes of, you know, Lavery's connections to everybody, Fromset's little gestures here and there, like, perhaps I'm, I'm struggling with conventions of the genre, really. But I've read straightforward mysteries, and this is not a straightforward mystery. I think it's a straightforward mystery as Chandler would have written it. I think that would be the yeah. proper argument okay. there. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> this is him trying to do the tropes of that genre, you know, and uh, okay. in, in, Fair in, enough. in his own fashion. But now I think is that because he's stuck with those tropes, I think that the exposition dump kind of is, I think is a result of that. Of uh, And even I was, you know, even like the, the, the detective novels from before and the pulp novels do have those big reveals at the end, the big switches mm -hmm. or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So because they're trying to excite the readers, right? So they do have, as I said, that M. Night Shyamalan moment, only it's not because, you know, that they're actually living inside like, I don't know, like a, a snow globe or something like that. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's much more, you know, more in, impactful. Like, oh, okay, so uh, Crystal Kinsley is the one that's actually dead and Mildred Haviland has been impersonating Crystal Kinsley the whole time. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. let me ask you this then. Um, did you think the link between Muriel and Lavery was underwritten? Because I certainly did. I, I, in order to catch some of this stuff, I thought the link between those two characters was underwritten. 
Yeah, I do. I do agree that is not one hundred percent clear. Like I believe it's mentioned that Lavery met her at, at the party. cabin. At, at the, the cabin. Yeah, at the cabin. Yes. Yeah. At the cabin. So he met Muriel Chess that way, and so he when so when he was in San Bernardino, he recognized Muriel Chess at the hotel at the mm-hmm. Prescott. Mm-hmm. So then he went away with her. Right. That's that's the whole thing is from and of course he stole I'd steal her money and stuff and she came back sure. and she killed yeah. him. Yes. But but. You know, that's kind of that. That's that was a Lavery connection. Uh-huh. Now, Lavery might have been too convenient a connection. There were two big moments of convenience uh, in this story, and that I agree with is the Lavery connection. You know, the fact that up at the cabin he meets Muriel Chess, and then Lavery is uh, coincidentally at the San Bernardino Hotel. Mm-hmm. Right? And he's also linked to Elmore story and he's linked to elmore because it's across the street from yeah it. so 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 chandler tried a bit too hard to link all those stories together yeah. so i think that's where i kind of take off a point from the from the investigation mm-hmm. is, is is that part of it and not only the fact that something tells me like are we to believe that marlo bought i guess he, i guess he wasn't looking for crystal kinsley he knew what she looked like mm-hmm. so when he saw uh miss uh, Fallbrook. Yeah, he wasn't looking for Muriel Chess, a dead woman. That's or right. Or even Middleton Haviland, he was looking for um, what's her name for Crystal Kinsley. Crystal and Kinsley, so yeah. He yeah. wouldn't have recognized her, especially like with bad makeup and her hair and the big hat and the big and hat, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. But the fact that she had like the gun in her hand and then and then like the gun was left on the stairs, like I think maybe his chivalrous nature might have gotten the best of him. Yeah, that's um, a good he point. Tried yeah. to, he did try to scare her off and get her out because he didn't want her involved with this. So his chivalrous nature got the mm-hmm. best of him, and it ended up like she outfoxed him in that sense, to use that term again. Yeah, yeah, and that's just much more. Him, I guess would be the proper term. Yeah, <laughs> that's the femme fatale, isn't it? Still. Yeah, there. but exactly. I thought the Lavery Almore stuff was was a bit too much stuffing, really, for the plot. But I, I get it. You know, more I do red get herrings that he's throwing at yeah, you, right? That exactly. he's trying to trick you. He's too stuck to the mystery novel in there, mm-hmm. and even though like he's known for his complex story. Uh, for the mystery who done it thing, maybe he should have toned down a little bit further if he wanted to do that. So I can see where the complexity and even the convolution uh, could occur at that point. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, I, I was, like I said, I was confused, but I got it. Obviously, I got it when I went back yes. and did it, but I, I didn't get it the way you did on the on the read. I had to really go back and, and piece it together. And that kind of took some of the enjoyment out of it for me because I felt like I was reading the book and I made the investment, obviously, and, and enjoyed much of it. But then I was asked to go back and put it together like a puzzle piece, which wasn't as satisfying when I felt it was a bit more forced than I would like it to be. Some stories drop that way and you go back and you're like, really excited to do that i wasn't really excited to do that with this one i mean i also think that by the time by the time we get that connection uh, that link between lavery and muriel later in the story we've already been introduced to jesus i mean we we must have 25 characters in this story that we had to think about and that's maybe not that many but close to 20 close to 20 characters we've met that I'm wondering, have they got something? Are they going to come back in? You know, I mean, my mark for investing. Even investi- this set is a uh, is a suspect. Oh yeah, very much so. At, yeah. At, at, at one point, even when like, even when uh, Mar- oh, yeah. Marlo believes her that mm-hmm. you know that 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 she left that the thing was that that um, I guess um, Lavery kept it as a trophy. I guess you could say mm-hmm. um, under his pillow, even which is kind of weird. Uh, she wasn't quite out of my suspicion yet because Chandler kept portraying her as this kind of cold. He was trying to portray her as a cold woman. Well, at least with a cold exterior, anyways, a very professional exterior. And he was also making her Kinsley's, uh, I guess, Girl Friday. Well, mm-hmm. more than his girl, his Girl Friday. So it seems that he was trying to set her up as a red herring as possibly being a killer as well. 
just her connection to Lavery and her connection to Crystal Kinsley and her jealousy of her of, jealousy uh, of Crystal uh, yeah. of Crystal Kinsley mm-hmm. as well because she clearly does not care for the woman. No, and she wants her husband. That's the other thing. Yeah. So my mark for investigation, I went for a three with investigation as well because I I was at a five as it was being a police procedural kind of a detective story at the beginning, but then when it then when it became how you know who who slept with who and who married who and who divorced and put on the other one's clothes and who dropped who in the lake, that just becomes something I I found difficulty keeping up with and I wasn't as excited about, and I knew that when I knew by the time Marlo was um, was being framed for that murder of Muriel that this was this was it you know I was in I was in for a fast and rapid and info dropping data dumping ending and I yeah. Whatever. I felt like it was all sort of um, kind of predictable at that point that I wasn't going to be satisfied with what happened at the end. But yeah, I went for a three with the investigation. But yeah, you, buddy, you must have liked it a lot more than me. Oh, I, yeah, I, I, I gave it a four and a half. Nice. Wow, that's good. Um, good one from you. Yeah. Cool. I, uh, as I said, I had some issues with, with some parts of the plot. Some parts didn't hold water. But at the same time, like, I just think everything added up to the reveal. And I found the reveal was really cool i like being surprised i like being taken for a ride and i i guess i like being tricked i like having my expectations subverted and so that that's just something you know that um i've always enjoyed in in writing or in any kind of uh in a film even or in a any other kind of medium Mm -hmm. i've always enjoyed that kind of sensation that i get from a story like that so that's um, good good score though good score i'm glad you enjoyed that because um it's given us something to bounce off anyway isn't it yes for sure we're on to perpetrator now, Josh. And this, this, as I said, was a complicated one for me, buddy, because Indeed. because I, I had issues with this uh, one too. Because we got we've we've obviously got um, Muriel Chess, or if you will, um, Muriel Haviland, but Mildred Haviland. Mildred Haviland, thank you. Yeah. But we don't just have Mildred Haviland, do we? We've also got Degarmo and how much a villain he is. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. So I'll let you take Elmore the lead is a with bit this. Of a creep too. Doctor Elmore is a bit of a creep. On he top is, of, that. of course, he is. Yes, but he, he's a creep that we don't he's, ever meet. He, he's a player, yeah. And we don't meet George Talley. We only hear nope. of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you have the, the, I guess you have the two cops that uh, beat up Marlowe and mm-hmm. frame him for the drunk driving bit, but. One of them is just doing a job, and he's about to go off to war. So exactly. I guess yeah. I guess he's kind of like Marlowe's version of like a sorry of Chandler's version of a crusader. You know, he's going to the Holy Land and save his soul. I suppose you could say because he's going out to the great, you know, Allied expeditionary force most mm-hmm. likely in uh, uh, forty four. Right. So, well, I'll let you take the lead on this category, buddy. Uh, yeah, for the perpetrators, I gave this a three and a half. Um, I one thing I will I will say derogatorily about the lady in the lake is I we're back again to having a lady killer as the victim. Like we have to admit that as much as as thinly sketched out as she is, we only we we don't really meet Mildred Haviland uh, as a character until halfway through the story. Mm -hmm. But even then she's in the guise of someone else that we always expected to be. So we don't really get a sense of her character or what are her motivations. Is she just like evil? Is that it? She is just absolutely plain evil. Mm-hmm. She's a fallen woman, a victim of Babylon who let it take her soul. And and it just seems that Chandler is just wants to portray her as such. He's not interested in her backstory or why that's the way that she is. We just know that she ruined a good man like DeGarmo. We get that kind of from Weber in a way because DeGarmo is a good detective, but he's not a good cop because of her. Um 
And then, you know, we have what you did to build chess and then framing him. And then you have the whole backstory of her with Almore and her murdering uh, Florence Almore. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we only hear about what the things that she's done and we only see her as in disguise as somebody else or and we, with that one moment when we do meet Mildred Haviland, it's only for a brief second and then she's killed. And killed in a way that, in a way, seems almost like if Chandler is punishing, or this is what Williams posits anyways, that Chandler is punishing someone like her for being the way that she is. So it's a really hard grasp at Mildred Haviland as a main villain that I find as interesting as the previous ones that we had. Um, to me, Miss Grail had more depth than, say, Mildred Haviland did in that respect. Um, How so? so? As a, How as so? A main, well, I just think that she was better presented, I think, in A Farewell, My Lo- my Lovely. Mm-hmm. Like, we mm-hmm. knew her as this woman that Marla was looking for. And a Miss Grail, like, she just played it very she, – she played it very well. Like, definitely a sociopath, of course, but mm-hmm. she seems smarter than uh, Mildred Haviland. Mildred Haviland seemed like she would get into a situation um, because of her – you know, because of her lack of control, and then she'd find a way to crawl out of it. But then, she, but then eventually, it catches up to her, right? Because she yeah. has destroyed this man that loved her, and and um, brings out the worst in him, um, and that destroys her. Maybe, maybe Grail was a little less impulsive, a little more forward I, thinking, maybe. She was, but she was also cold blooded as well. Oh and, yeah, of course. Yeah, she was just just like gunning down Moose Malloy, like that uh-huh. was cold, 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 and. Uh, like Lavery, like at least she had a reason to kill him. He stole her money and stuff. So like, there was kind of a retribution part there, I suppose. I don't know if that earned him his death, but uh-huh. maybe in her eyes it did. So I guess you could have some comparisons between the two of them. And as we know, and as I said earlier, um, Chandler was writing the Lady in the Lake and mm-hmm. the right. and uh, the Farewell, My Lovely, around at the same time, mm-hmm. or he started writing them around. Yeah, the same he was time. sketching them. Yeah. He was sketching them mm-hmm. out. So there are similarities you can point out for sure. Mm-hmm. As the main villain, though, I guess you got to go with Al DeGarmo because in the last half of the book, he's definitely prevalent. He's prevalent through the whole narrative as a menacing figure. We don't quite – there's a, there's a bit of an ambiguity once they team up after the whole sex killers mm-hmm. setup mm-hmm. that occurs. Um, can, can, before we get into that part yeah. and, and, and you into that DeGarmo thing, can I ask you a question about the whole sex framing, the sex murder frame? Do, do you read it that – do you read it that DeGarmo had his way with her? I don't – I don't know. It's it's hard to say. Who because who took the clothes off? Who like who who was with him when he was going to to do that? You know, who was with him when he was setting that one up? Well, yeah, you had Marlo like passed out in the room. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and that was it, right? And so he used, and they were, I, maybe because the only thing that he could do to make it um, possibly in his favor, I guess you could say, the only thing that he could do to make this look weird or like a sex crime was stripping her naked and then scratching her belly with, with his fingernails, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and maybe that was the only thing that he could really do to make it look like a sex act instead of, you know, doing the whole Jack the Ripper thing or something mm-hmm. like that. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, and so, I mean, at, at, at the risk so, of getting so maybe, gross yeah, about so it. Basically, like, he kind of, besides strangling her and killing her, and then, you know, like scratching up her stomach and stuff like that and leaving her naked, you know, like on display there. I don't think mentally that he could go to the state of, you know, violating her in that fashion. I think that was the best that he could do to make it look like a sex crime without overall kind of, you know, um, defacing her, I, mm-hmm. I, I guess you could say, in his own way. Um, but this this is a woman that he was in love with, though. I mean, this is I, a woman that he I, I, wanted up until very recently. 
Which is why, like, he didn't. I don't. I don't think he went all the way into showing it as a sex act. The only thing he, the only thing that made it look like a sex act, in the description. And maybe this was just Chandler being tame for the time. I suppose, you know, not going into details. You know, someone like I don't know, like a modern mystery writer like James Elroy would do. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's the one who wrote uh, the Black Dahlia, for example, mm-hmm. which is based off a famous case of that time. Yeah, that's right. But, but at the same time, like Chandler was probably aware of that case in particular. Although I don't know, I think it might have been a bit a couple of years afterwards. Actually, the uh, the Black Dahlia case, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But but of course, it, none of, none of that takes yeah. away from what you're saying. No. That Degarmo, you feel is the big bad, and if if Degarmo is the big bad, then how are we meant to view Mildred? I mean, she's obviously bad. We've already established that. But is I she a victim she, as well? Is she a victim yeah. as well? I think big bad is not a really great word to it's say just, here. In it's this, just in not. In, it's not in it's this not. story. No. In this story, we have we have. I say the main perpetrators are, you could say, Mildred Haviland and Degarmo. It just seems that Degarmo is the more fleshed out of the two villains, I guess you could say. And do you do you think the balance is right? Do you think the principle of having two perpetrators works in this story? Because I I feel like it's too much guesswork for me, and. I get that everybody's corrupt. That's not a problem for me. You know, this is the world we're in and I don't trust anybody. I'm very much like Sheriff Patton in that respect, you know, like I'm simple minded, but I don't trust anybody. In fact, I align myself with him quite a bit in this story. Um, Yes. But getting back to the point, do you feel his balance worked with Mildred and with DeGarmo? Well, again, in the end, Mildred herself is kind of a red herring as well, because in terms of the story narrative, I guess you could say. Because, I don't know, because she, I mean, because, the murders. I mean, she, sorry. She does all these murders, absolutely. But as a, but in terms of like, if we were to, if we were evaluating her as a villain in terms of other villains that we read in these stories, um, I think, you know, she's very thinly sketched out and we don't know a lot about her because she's also yeah. a plot device at the same time as being mm-hmm. a character. Whereas right. DeGarmo seems to be a character that exists and breathes in this world and he's reacting to the actions of Mildred Haviland and everything is based upon that, right? It's just that his villainy isn't as pronounced in terms of like, oh, this guy is the bad guy from the very beginning. This guy is the murderer. That's not the case here. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who we first appear as menacing because, well, he's first kind of ambiguous because he chases Marlowe away, but he just seems like another guy that's chasing Marlowe away and he might have a backstory to him that might be more interesting down the road if we encounter him again. Mm-hmm. But then we have that whole sequence at the Lavery place where he he slaps Marlowe like almost three times. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and that just and that but that also gives hints towards, you know, the the, the cover up of uh, of of Almore, of of Miss Almore's death and Mrs. Almore's death. So and the, and so the insinuation is, is that hmm, this guy is something, something more to going on. What is the connection to Almore? And then I'm realizing, you know what, we're not really going to get an overarching big bad for this story. We're going to get a whole bunch of people involved in their own shit. And it's all tangled up, essentially. And Haviland is sort of the, uh, I guess, the um, the spider that goes along that web, I suppose, and leads everyone by her trail, I, you know, in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. And you could also extend that and say that Lavery is the guy who, as this gigolo character, is kind of connected to everybody, you know? Yeah. Is he a gigolo, though? Like, it doesn't seem like he gets paid for it. You know, it seems like he's just a womanizer type. Well, I, th- I think he, I think he does. I think he does suck a bit of money out of them. I mean, look, he took, well, he, he took steals, Mildred's. He steals. Yeah, he steals. He, steals he doesn't them. get paid he for them. them. He doesn't he get paid. Yeah. So he's he's that kind of gigolo. He's like a he's like a Lothario. As I, yeah, you know, he's as, he's as a pretty said. boy. That that is yeah, that's true. So gigolo is the wrong word. I think you're right. Call me on that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So but he definitely the, has sociopathic tendencies as well. Based oh yeah, on that. he does. Yeah, he does. So for you, the balance was okay. Degarmo was was what he was. Um, one of the things that wasn't really established 
very well at least, was the conflict, even though it was staged for the sake of taking her identity and killing her, what was the conflict or the uh, the fight between Crystal and Mildred? What was it that, because uh, they didn't really know each other too well. It, it wasn't a conflict. It was simply the fact that she saw that Crystal Ga- that Crystal Kinsley was making looks, w- w- was... And her husband, yeah. And her husband. And that might have sung a bit of pride and jealousy in her. Mm -hmm. But then you have to realize that happened around the exact time afterwards where she was told that a a police officer matching the description of DeGarmo Mm -hmm. was looking for her. Yes. And because Bertie Kepler mentions this. And that she had like no reaction whatsoever to it. So that was to the convenience of Bill Chess and Crystal Kinsley that Mm -hmm. just worked too well into her favor. And that's when she made her plan, I think. You know, killing Crystal while Bill was out getting drunk drowning her as marlo says probably in the bathtub and then bringing her and then because you know she's a good swimmer as Mm -hmm. chess says brings her down to the bottom of the lake and puts her under the flooring there and and that's that right that's essentially what she did yeah yeah although it still doesn't really set well with me because mildred didn't have um like her her purpose in marrying Bill in the first time was just to kind of lay low and get new cover, right? She was just, yes. she wasn't really attracted to him that much anyway. So I, yeah. I don't buy the idea that maybe the whole jealousy of looking at oh, her husband. Right? I, I think jealousy was just a superficial thing. I think 100% it was opportunity, 100%. Because mm-hmm. okay. she knew that DeGarmo was looking for her because she, she got tired of Bill and that's why she wired mm-hmm. Elmore with uh, extorting him, right? And that's yeah. what brought DeGarmo up into the mountains looking for her. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Right. Well, uh, what what did you go for then with the perps? Uh, with the perps, I gave three and a half. Yeah, I, that's I think you said the balance, that. Okay. I think the balance worked well in that favor. It, mm-hmm. They weren't. I found DeGarmo interesting. Um, I, I actually did. Like, I thought he was a good antagonist. But and I liked how Marlowe played the mind games with him in the end. And it was it was cool to see someone who wasn't on Marlowe's level, like someone who was might have maybe a little bit slower, but someone who also who was had his own kind of sense of animal cunning, I guess you could say. And Charlie there even goes into that, giving him kind of like a snarl. You see his teeth and all this kind of stuff. He had kind of a, a bestial kind of way about him, kind of the opposite of Moose Malloy, who was more of a, a softy, big, tough guy. Whereas this as whereas this guy was like a big, tough guy, but he also had the cunning, you know. So. It seems to me that um, it was a fair balance. Okay. I went for a three, as with my other two um, categories uh, I, thus I'm far. I'm not going to contest that. No. No, that's well said. I, but, I, but, you know, I feel as though DeGarmo is a bit like Hemingway from Farewell. You know, he's he's a yeah, bit of yeah. the same sort of Bay City cookie cutter guy who we just get connected more and exposed more as a bad guy here. Like, we know they're all crooked and we know they're all... Be- just just as the same way that um, Hemingway and the other fellow were called out to uh, to kind of protect the doctor, right, who was doing all this work on the doping and whatnot. Here yes, we... A, and, another dope doctor as well. Yeah. And again, writing this book at the same time. Right? I know, or, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so there's those connections too, another dope doctor. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, you're speaking to that cannibalization nature of, of these narratives, which he put together from other short stories and put... Uh, yeah, 100%. And I'm okay with that, but I just kind of feel yeah. like the, the Garmo, the only original bit of him, because I feel like I've already met his character before, the corrupt Bay City cop, right? I, I get that, who, who does call-outs for guys like Almore... But the only thing that is expanded on is kind of his 
his murderous ways and things like that. I I felt like and I've already met him before. Killed, yeah. And the fact that he killed his his his, his love his the woman that he loves too. Mm-hmm. Like, that brought mm-hmm. a, that brought a bit of a complex a complexity to him that I didn't expect to have. Mm-hmm. Like I expected, I expected maybe as a as a corrupt cop he'd be more typical in that fashion, but also you know a wife killer or ex wife killer and and also setting up the sex crime. Like it just goes to show you know this guy had really hidden rage issues and maybe Chandler was trying to explore that a little bit and there could be some self hatred in there. Who knows? But anyway but none of that is fleshed out in the story do you know no exactly and that's why i think like a three or three and a half for the perpetrators of this story i think the real perpetrator of this story was the trick that chandler played on was raymond (laughs) chandler was the real perpetrator on the trick that he played (laughs) on the audience here giving them a whodunit Mm -hmm. and then also giving him a typical whodunit and that twist you know i I think that's really what chandler was all about in the story was just kind of giving that was that twist and him being the villain i guess you could say (laughs) totally yeah no you, you raise a good point buddy yeah well uh you're at a three five. I'm at a three. The environment here, I, I really like the stuff where we're away from the city. I, you know, the stuff in the city's all right too. There's less of it. The San Bernardino stuff's good. But as I as I intimated earlier, I I quite like the the way some of these exterior spaces are speaking to us. The bungalow homes on the bluff, you know, and what they might say about the characters, the denizens of the homes themselves. Uh, I do like the Puma Point stuff, all the lakeside descriptions. Um, I, I'm interested to be there, and the writing, the writing in this book does transport you I mean it is it's good when 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 and he doesn't do it often you know we talked about when he did it at Bunker Hill in the last book and he does it here a couple of points but he doesn't often sink into just sort of expository or descriptive writing setting establishment you know when he does we get really nice things but he's not that type of, of writer he's not that type of writer he lets his yeah, dialogue and his like, action push him like you get that drive up into from like that you know he, he describes very well you know the drive from Los Angeles mm-hmm. uh, all the way up to um, to San Bernardino then up into the mountains describing the climb and all that like the, the I we have leaving I guess the the barren plain of the Los Angeles Valley you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, of you know the San Fernando Valley, whatever the whole big area is called, yep. um, leaving that behind and going up to the mountains in seclusion, where you think you can hide from that, but it follows you up there too, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I, I do like how he describes that. Um, I, I agree with you, like on the description of the uh, the house, the the exterior spaces, especially up at Puma Point and Little Fawn Lake, and mm-hmm. I can definitely visualize Coon Lake and that wood house yeah, and, yeah. And, and that woodshed with the car inside it, yeah. and just how like and, the, and how he described how there was the uh, used to be a summer camp there. Those kind of descriptions, that nature versus civilization thing, yeah. I really, I really, I always loved that in in in, in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the description of like the Indian Head Lodge and just how all all the denizens that go in there and Marlo watching them, you know, with his, with a frown and, and just how all that and the whole summer activity going on there and, and people on the lake. And he, he was really building the atmosphere of this idyllic existence. Right. Also one that our central character wishes he could probably participate in. Yeah, absolutely. I also love like Giller Lane. I love the layout of the Giller Lane offices mm-hmm. where he comes in and you got, you know, the cute, the kitten on the, uh, as he describes her, on the uh, PBX. And then you have Miss Fromm sit there and then you have the, the offices leading in and just a description of all that. And each, and each of the angel hotels have their own distinction. Like Fromm hotel is described in detail, very different mm-hmm. from everything else. And then, and then you had like the, the place where the Graysons live in their own little plush apartment and how he could smell. They had like, 
uh, broccoli and, and lamb chops that evening and, mm-hmm, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like he's not only creating visual textures, he's creating sensory textures as well. He and, always uh, does that though. And he, some, and he does that sometimes by mixing his metaphors and his figurative language, you know, he's really, really yes. good at that because he, we got, we got that scene in the Prescott hotel where Crystal's car was left. Right. And yes. when he goes up to interview the, uh, the bellboys bell or yeah, yeah, whatever, like there's really good stuff there, but the elevator, you know, how hot it is, you know, yes. and then how he has to walk but, sideways into the room and that's the room type thing yeah, that's the know? bathroom yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely one of my favorite lines i don't think it was atmosphere but i think it's just the writing is that scene after uh degarmo from set uh they all agree you know that they're gonna go find kinsley at mm-hmm. this place yeah and it said and, and, we, and we all sat down like relatives and seen each other off at the train station because <laughs> after they had this whole like grim conversation about kinsley they're all sitting down having coffee it's like <laughs> and we all sat down and having you know like <laughs> he, he, the sarcasm is, and, and just the dripping wit is just mm. so good sometimes. Like it's, it is good. Yeah. <laughs> and his, his writing here, you know, I know this is um, part of the environment and part of the investigation too, the writing style, but um, I, I put it more in here because these metaphors and these similes, they just, they, they keep jumping off the page. I mean, they're Marlowisms or, or they're, they're Chandlerisms really, but there's, there's a couple here that go through this one. Uh, it went into, uh, yeah, this is, this is him trying to bribe the, um, not the bellhop. Who's the guy who he doesn't get on with so well? Oh, it's uh, Les, I think it was. Yeah, he was yeah. like He's like the head bellhop or, like the, or something like that. Yeah. Um, I separated another dollar from my exhibit and it went into his pocket with a sound like caterpillars fighting. <laughs> <laughs> That's just great, isn't it? Yeah. Because <laughs> you read it twice and you're like, what? What is that? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. And then you're like, Like, hmm. like caterpillars fighting. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good one. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think another good environment, too, that I liked was the uh, – I love the description of uh, Mrs. Tally's bungalow. Uh, and yeah, just like, that's and great. Yeah. And him just yelling through the screen door or having a conversation at the screen mm-hmm. door. And mm-hmm. you can basically see her in the dark, but she's just lying on the couch there, right? And and it's how he described how you can see your eyes in the dark and telling him to go away and stuff. And just feeling that he's not wanted, you know? Yeah, and then totally. you have like And then you have the whole chase through like the – the, the, the junkyards, I guess you could say, and him trying to get back to civilization where it's lighted, as he tells Weber, right? So, yeah, just that was a really evocative scene, too. So I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like even the small locales, they stand out and stuff. So I, the environs are pretty solid in this book for me. I think this is probably one of the high marks that, that, I, that, I, that I'm giving it. Well, well another yeah. high mark that I'm I gave it a four. Is. So what did, yeah. what did you go for? I was four and a half. Okay, cool, um, man. I think the him going up to the mountains and Raymond Chandler describing the places that he pretty much probably stayed um, and back you know in that time I uh, I think that he described it uh, perfectly and he made me feel that I was there so mm-hmm. um, and just add an extra dimension outside of Los Angeles and his fictional Bay City you know like just adding more to it. I got that description of Tally's house if you want it. Yeah, sure. The house on Westmore Street was a small frame bungalow behind a larger house. There was no number visible on the smaller house, but the one in front showed a stenciled 1618 beside the door with a dim light behind the stencil. A narrow concrete path led along under windows to the house at the back. It had a tiny porch with a single chair on it. I stepped up to the porch and rang the bell. It buzzed not far off. The front door was open behind the screen, but there was no light. From the darkness, a querulous voice said, What is it? I spoke into the darkness. Mrs. Tallian, the voice became flat and without tone. Who wants him? A friend. The woman sitting inside the darkness made a vague sound in her throat, which might have been amusement, or she might have just been clearing her throat. All right, 
How much is this one? It's not a bill, Mrs. Tally. I suppose you are Mrs. Tally. Ah, uh, go away and let me alone, the voice said. Mr. Tally isn't here. He hasn't been here. He won't be here. I put my nose against the screen and tried to peer into the room. I could see the vague outline of its furniture. From where the voice came from also showed the shape of a couch. A woman was lying on it. She seemed to be lying on her back and looking up at the ceiling. She was quite motionless. I'm sick, the voice said. I've had enough trouble. Go away and leave me be. But yeah, no, that is another example of yeah, just how he sets the mood. And what I love about Chandler is that he... He gives like he gives you the location um, and details of that because they're important to to the story because they allow you to see through Marlowe's eyes exactly mm. what he's looking at and what he's seeing so you can visualize it yourself and then that's where I think his writing really pays off is because in the and the details and the similes that, and metaphors that he puts in there because then you can understand where he's pulling these metaphors from and 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 you can use them in your own personal references to relate to what he's talking about so yeah. it creates a greater intimacy with the reader in my opinion mm -hmm. the peacock lounge was a narrow front next to a gift shop in whose window a tray of small crystal animals shimmered in the street light the peacock had a glass brick front and solid light glowed out around the stained glass peacock that was set into the brick i went in around a chinese screen and looked along the bar and then sat at the outer edge of a small booth the light was amber the leather was chinese red and the booths had polished plastic tables in one booth, four soldiers were drinking beer moodily, a little glassily in the eyes, and obviously bored even with drinking beer. Across from them, a party of two girls and two flashy-looking men were making the only noise in the place. I saw nobody that looked like my idea of Crystal Kingsley. Yeah. Like in that scene, he is looking for Crystal Kinsley. Mm -hmm. Any writer could just describe that, you know, like I didn't see her in the bar or I couldn't That's make right, out yeah, with her. Yeah. And they would give maybe a vague description of the occupants of the bar. But as a detective, you know that he's scanning that whole room and already his deductive skills, I guess you could call them, are picking things up. Yeah, exactly. Like he is mm -hmm. able to describe everybody in the room. Like it's just that description of someone, a professional. And Chandler, I, he, he sells that so well mm -hmm. in his writing. Well, you went four or five and I went four. And yeah, the, the writing in, in the book is good. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. Chandler is, a, is expert at, at, at getting you interested in a scene and he paints scenes well and his language is, is tight and interesting and at some points really colorful. And I, I don't think you'll be bored by the writing in the book or the characterization in most parts. Um, yeah. So again, a strong, strong book from that perspective. But yes, uh, but, but if, you're conf if, if you find it a bit too complex, you know, based on whatever mindset you are when you're reading the book and what have you not, I can see how these things could also be adding to that complexity and maybe too much detail and then overstuffing and, and leading to that kind of confusion. So I can see for some people how it may not have worked. And I, and I, I mm -hmm. accept that. I understand that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But I kind of read it and I would, I would probably think a lot of people read it this way too. Like, you know, you can stop and appreciate a good description when you see one out with yes. how it, how it kind of plants your feelings and things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for, narratively speaking. Uh, in terms of yeah, the Yeah, you second, can cherry pick great stuff for sure. Yeah, exactly. You can still cherry pick stuff for these stories, which is why I would always, you know, I'd still stand by them and recommend them, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Because exactly. that's, that's how you know you, you've got a good, a good artist as well as a good narrative writer as such. Um, secondary characters, you know, there's so many in this story, Josh, and some of them work and some of them pop and some of them just kind of flatten to me. Like the, the best character in the story, the one I'm most interested in being around, at least is Sheriff Patton. And yeah, he's, he's good. I think, I think for me, you know, it's probably, I joked about it a few moments ago, but I think it's probably because he reads the scenes that he's given 
the same way I feel as though I've read this book. Like he doesn't sit back and, you know, know everything about everything. And he can't because Chandler has connections in the city that he doesn't understand. Right. So yes. he's, he, he, he just, he just waits patiently. He's, yes. uh, you know, you, you could, you could just have been fooled into thinking, well, he's just going to be this sort of uh, arrogant, small town, little, you know, um, a good old that? boy, a good old Andy, Andy Griffith type of guy, you know, yeah, exactly. Simple and whatnot. And no, no, Andy Griffith wasn't simple, but you see my point, but no, I, I liked how he plays things. Like he, he, he acts and probably does know very little, but he's very clever, at least clever enough to not let people know he doesn't know very much. And he instinctively trusts and suspects Marlowe in equal measure, you know? I I feel, anyway, that his, his movements in the story are, are really simple, but he never lets a lack of understanding show. And his game is a long game. You know, he waits for others to reveal or info dump stuff that he can use. And kind so of, he's you. <laughs> so he's kind of like me, yeah. Like this is audience uh, reader surrogate, I guess. You could he's say, a, well, in a well, way, he certainly doesn't pretend to know more than he does, does he? At any one yeah. point in the story, he doesn't pretend or yeah. hold things over Marlowe. Like for example, he's yeah, and that's kind of why I think he's a cool cat. Like I like that he's clever enough to know that he needs to follow Marlowe's lead, but at the same time, he still hangs around and stays back in Chess's cottage or cabin at night to make sure that Marlowe knows he's not just giving his trust away. Like, I I like that he isn't so stupid as to just think that this guy from the city can come up and do what he wants. He still needs to work with and under the jurisdiction of the sheriff. Exactly. Um, But he's not... But he respects Marlowe in his own way. Exactly, yeah. Yes. And I I think he's cool. And uh, he's very cool at the end with the gun. I love that part at the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As I said, uh, he's a bit of a quick hand there. Very quick hand, very good shot. And uh, I like like the sort of the cool confidence with which he says that too, you know, because the Garmo is like really surprised with him. But yeah. as he as he says, it's like you know. Well, I told you I was a good shot, so you know, <laughs> your, your problem for not for not listening to me, right? Yeah, exactly. Like Degarmo just dismisses him as just like an, mm. uh, as a rustic fatty, basically, mm. as 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 he puts it. But see, chapter thirty nine or thirty eight, uh, what whichever one it is, where where Marlowe just info dumps everything he knows in like the first six pages of that chapter. Yes. I mean, Sh- Sheriff Patton is sitting back like a lot like I was, just kind of <laughs> okay, like chewing on a straw, you know. Taking it in, yeah. Taking absolutely. it in, yeah. So basically, yeah, and so by the end of the exposition, so he's basically like, okay, so this guy, DeGarmo, is the culprit, mm-hmm. okay. So then he just, he's just ready to go right then and there. That's all he needs to know. Like, yeah. okay, yeah. so... So thank you for your wallet, but, <laughs> right. but TLDR, no. <laughs> I shoot, I, I put my gun at this guy, right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, the distillate Marlo is... is... Marlowe is a wall of text. <laughs> mm, it really is. He needs, he needs TLDR. I was thinking of all the characters we've met in all of the Marlowe stories. Do you think it's possible that the Graysons are the most normal in terms of like everyday human beings, like non-corrupt, just sort of normal folk that we've seen? Yeah. Her dad wanted justice for his daughter. And I liked how he was like a chartered accountant. Hmm. And I think there's a whole that whole moment where Chris Lavery, where Marlowe tells them that Chris Lavery has been killed and then you see him like take the pipe out of his mouth slowly and how mm-hmm. just Chandler describes it. It's like, and then he says, it goes, I suppose that has nothing to do with any connection to Dr. Elmore, does it? Like he, he was like, this was, this was for him just one moment where he could have had the connection that he had, you know, like this could have been the moment where he realized that uh, a certain someone mm-hmm. lost the mm-hmm. election. 
You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. It was just one of those triumphant moments that uh, that this guy, this, that um, Mr. Grayson was thought he was about to have, but mm-hmm. he was disappointed in the end because it still didn't connect back to Elmore, who Marlowe knew they were too focused on, and and he thought there was something much, much more going on than just Elmore at that point. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I just thought that they were kind of interesting. In, they were in a refreshing sort of way. Not not. I mean, they're obviously mourning the loss of their daughter still, but interesting in the sense that they are regular folk who you don't often see a lot of. Most people who we meet in these stories that yes. Marlowe goes after are some way within the web of involvement. Some of them are good, of course, yes. like Anne Rurden, and um, you know, and the cop who uh, the cop in Bay City who helped him get onto the the lottery boats the lotto boats the uh, one that the one that uh marlo throws at dergarmo earlier that's right yeah that that he knew al norgard Norgard, yeah and it's funny too because marlo talks about bay city later Mm -hmm. later on about you know how bay city is this great place and it's like a it's like this super community outside of los angeles that you know, for for reasons of I guess of his fiction, maybe he doesn't want to tie it too closely to L.A. to give it a bad name. But Marlowe, I think uh, Chandler story wants to mm-hmm. have his Bay City being like this, almost like this. Uh, how Detroit was seen back then as like the Motor City, the city of the future, and then underneath it though is all this corruption as well mm-hmm. yeah maybe he yeah. didn't want to tie it too much to los angeles maybe that's why he came up with bay city i don't know exactly or he just wanted a neighboring jurisdiction that he could kind of mm-hmm. put in all, all those surrounding areas outside of los angeles as one place maybe for convenience i do not know but he does mention he knew a girl there in uh, on, on a certain address in bay city and it of does, course yeah. he's referring to ann reardon right of so, course yeah yeah I, I like that i like that small bit of world building and um you know, and I really do like the sheriff, and I really do like Fromset as well, even though I think yeah. she's a bit underused in the story. She is. Um, I, I, I just couldn't go above 3.5 for myself, personally, because I feel as though the, the bowl gets a bit mixed. Oh, sorry, the it, it just gets a bit cluttered, you know? Like, this is more cluttered, I find, in its secondary characters and its secondary plots than the other ones. That's just how I read it. So the whole, I guess, the misconception... That this, for me at least, that this is a straight, a straightforward, you know, straight-looking story. I, I don't, uh, I, I still can't read the story that way because I had difficulty with the second half of it. That's that 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 that's oh, blah blah blah. I was going to do my Porky Pig impression there. Um, yeah, no, I see where you're coming from. I found the supporting characters, at least I found that at least there was a lot of them, but they had to mention each one of them. Like, I just found them as, they sound like they were believable people that inhabited the story, like Bertie Kepler, for example, and Mar- and Chandler gives them this nuances, you know, that you wouldn't give those characters, people, that some people wouldn't devote time to. Like, the fact that he has to describe that Kepler is a, uh, a stylist slash reporter, um, just kind of showing and explaining to her place in the community, you know, like she's part of the community there. She gives hair... St- her, she gives hairstyles to all these tourists, most likely, who were up there and lounging around and l- looking pretty on the summer holiday. And she takes care of that, but then she's also a reporter, so he has all the gossip available to her. So there was that faucet of of, int- of, of interest for me. Yeah, uh, but she's in. I, she's only on the. She's not like. She's in the story for four or yes. five pages, and she hops in the car like in a really unnatural but, but, way. Like it's. But, 
but what is not a but what is a supporting character but someone who helps the narrative go along right and right okay fine i, yeah. I get that but and yeah. she, by definition she is but the way that she gets involved like she's not even she's not even a waitress at a cafe or marlo doesn't meet her you know buying stamps at the post office or something he she jumps and is waiting at his car and then there's no payoff for that like i find that's really a weird way to pigeon her in well the payoff is is that he learns about you know, he gets more details yes, on. Right. Um, Sorry, correction. Not not payoff. Not payoff. Yeah. What I meant to say is that there's no continuation to it. There's like it's like a big setup. Like, is she gonna want to go with him? No. She she is literally sitting on his car so that she can give him information, and then she goes. Like. Well, well, I think she wanted to get information from him. So it's just an example of regular people just using each other for their own purposes, right? That's kind of what. I think the story is about again is about it's about the regular people like we don't have the big rich families in this story we have the ceo giller lane right who does his thing but he's not a he's not a rich he's not a huge i mean he's wealthy but he's not part of this upper crust that we've seen in in the in the other um, no he's not the nouveau riche at nouveau riche or even the old reach i guess you could say uh i probably pronounced that wrong uh like in the in the other stories um, it's just the same as just some characters. They, they just pop and they just seem believable yeah, in the world. Yeah, yeah they're what they're two dimensional, but mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. work and they make you feel like you're 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 they immerse you into the story. Like even the very fact that Marlowe comes in and he smiles at the at the when he comes in the second time into Gillian offices to see Bromset, and he smiles at the secretary there who you know he's not like you know he mentions that like she never has any fun and him smiling at her made her day most likely. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he's he's sympathetic that way because mm-hmm. he knows that. She's probably in a dreary freaking job where she is, and and he comes in and you know and he just kind of smiles at her because he knew that she would like that. So I just and that helped build Marlowe's character for me as well. So yeah, these are plot devices. Yeah, these are character uh, motivators. I guess you could say for a protagonist antagonist in some cases. But at the same time, I think the characters are strong. Um, I don't like. I, I give the characters like overall. I, I I thought they worked very well for the story. I thought they inhabited the worlds in and out, and they played part of the mystery for me. They gave me a list of red herrings of suspects to deal with. So you know that worked. That worked for me just fine. Mm-hmm. So my final mark on the supporting characters is uh, four is four out of five. Okay, right. Well, my friend, that brings you to a total of. 20.5 for you, my friend, out of 20.5 out of 25 for you. And for me, it was uh, 7.5 and 9 is uh, 16.5. So, yeah, you're uh, a good four points ahead of me on this one. And mm-hmm. if I'm to ask you to rank the Chandler stories we've read so far, mm-hmm. where would you go? Where would you go? In terms oh, of enjoyment, I'm not asking you like to choose the best. I'm just saying this is Josh's list. Nobody else's. Mm-hmm. W- what do you like? Well, I think Big Sleep is still my number one in terms of enjoyment. Okay, cool. This would be my number two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the third would be Farewell, My Lovely. Mm-hmm. And the fourth would be The High Window. Cool. Okay, so Big Sleep, Lady in the Lake, Farewell, My Lovely, and The High Window. Yeah. Very I'm cool. guessing your first is the... Do you want to say it or do you want me to, to guess what your first is? Yeah, go ahead. You, you go ahead and guess my four. Uh, I would say your first is Farewell, My Lovely. Mm-hmm. I would say your second is The Big Sleep. Mm-hmm. And your third is The High Window. And your fourth is Lady in the Lake. You mix 
number two and number three. Yeah. Ah, so yeah, interesting. The, the okay. big sleep. I, I I did like I like the fact that Chandler tried to do something a little bit different, and that we could see more of that chivalric character that was hinted at in the big window. It's a big window. <laughs> the big <laughs> the sleep. <laughs> yeah. I I like farewell, my lovely, the best. I think that uh, it's got the perfect mix of what I you know what I'm what I'm looking for in one of these stories and I think uh, Chandler was just really really great on that one but uh, I like the high window um I didn't think when I first read it and reviewed it that I would reflect back on it that way but yeah I'm, I'm definitely definitely uh, more appreciative of what he was trying to do there and I don't I, I do not disagree at all with anyone who says you know the big sleep is the classic one it, I mean it's great um yes. but I just think I appreciate some of the other little set pieces I think of that one Okay. Of the high window a bit above it, yeah. And uh, I, although I did feel as though, um, hey, whatever, yeah. So, yeah, well I, done. When it comes to the big sleep, I just, I really liked how the first story, even though I understand that this was a Frankensteining, as we talked about before, of his other stories, I did like how the first story kind of like comes to an end with that initial investigation. But then there's something more happening. And then I, I just kind of liked that. That was unpredictable for me. And then I just kind of liked how he was still able to make a tie together in that fashion. Like, going towards the end and that that made it a little different than what i've read before in those kind of stories so i enjoyed it that way cool you know had the story remained more of a procedural detective story and less a you know hurry up and you know undo the cat's cradle of craziness and all these secondary characters who are linked to each other and whatnot which i felt as though the story did become i would probably put lady in the lake way up near the top because i thought okay. when i start when i started this story i thought i was getting into my favorite one you know like it uh, was so engaging all that stuff up in the uh, up in uh, puma lake and loon lake and all of that i was really into it and loved being somewhere different you know and i also appreciated the return to the city as a big contrast to that and like you were saying about the nature versus civilization stuff like i'm into that theme and that whole playoff setting and that would have been really really cool to continue but you didn't I, get well, that it, kind it of did john, continue yeah yeah you didn't get that kind of john ford western because john ford played with that in his westerns a lot was the nature versus civilization thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know like in the searchers and and stuff like that but you all they also play with that a little bit you know just the fact with bill patton you know just with yeah, he was kind of a character that was kind of on the yeah. fringes in that fashion too um yeah. so i i found that connection really nice too and i could say i could tell that chandler was playing with that for sure nice one well um that's it then for lady in the lake uh, a book that we would both recommend certainly i don't think that we're going to get through this chandler series without recommending one but it's definitely the one i would recommend least of the four so far okay and for you it was your second top so cool yeah. it's, it's nice for us to do one where we don't always see eye to eye isn't it yeah, I think if you want to get like the feel of Chandler, so like of how his books are, I would definitely recommend The Big Sleep 100% because that is that, that's Chandler to a T, is The Big Sleep. Um, and if you want personally, if you want to, I think really in, engage in a, um, I, I, I guess you could say like a really good mystery story on top of that and, and enjoy the, the complexity that he's brought to it. Um, then I would recommend The Lady in the Lake um, after that. And uh, then, of course, uh, Farewell, My Lovely. I think in a way, Farewell, My Lovely and The Lady in the Lake are sort of tied for me in a way um, because there's parts of, of, of Farewell, My Lovely that I think are, are done better. Uh, sorry, sorry, there's parts of Lady in the Lake that are done better in, the, in, um, in Farewell, My Lovely. And 
So it's really hard for me to say, but I guess I really enjoyed the mystery of this story and how it all came together. Um, it was it was Chandler attempting to take a real go at the genre that he was not a huge fan of, but that he was, but that his fans were kind of going. I guess his possible fans wanted him to do, you know, what they expected of him. I guess as a as a writer of this style of fiction, and I, I think he did a good job at it. Um, but I think his strength though lies in. More stories such as The Big Sleep and Farewell, My Lovely. All right. Well, there you go. That's a perfect way to end. I couldn't end it. I couldn't end it any better. Um, and I certainly think that with you being the the more favored reader of this story, you deserve the last word. So, uh, thank you so much. So thank you very much, everybody, for, uh, for tuning in to this episode of Lighten the Pipes. And we've got more to come because the little sister is being, is on the, is on the way. As well as uh, Raymond Chandler in Hollywood. That's another mm-hmm. adventure that we'll, ta- that we'll tackle as well. Yeah, that's going to be great because he, he writes the screenplay for a double indemnity shortly, doesn't he? That's right. Cool, cool. Well, thanks once again, Josh. It's been fun, buddy. Yeah, it, it's been a blast. And uh, I look forward to our next episode and uh, we can get into the next helping of Raymond Chandler. For sure, for sure. And just before we, we head off, if you're interested in the world of James Bond, as we always plug, pop on over to uh, Bond by Numbers or our sister show. I call it a sister show, but it's not a sister show. We do completely different things over there. We sure do. But it's in the family. Let's just say it's, that. It's in the family. It's a cousin. It, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a cousin. A co- it's a cousin show. <laughs> right. Take care, pal. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.